Thousands of protesters have descended on Lima, Peru. They've come from rural and poor areas and are calling for the president to resign. The country is growing increasingly unstable. More than 50 demonstrators have died. Our story is coming up on this Thursday, January 19th. You're listening to WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, refugee resettlement organizations are stretched thin, so the U.S. is trying a different approach. A private sponsorship program called Welcome Corps will let groups of average Americans sponsor refugees. And NPR has obtained never-before-published tapes recorded by prison staff during four executions in Virginia. These types of records are really key to public oversight and you know holding public bodies and you know government actors accountable. More on the intimate conversations between prisoners and workers coming up. It's 401. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. has hit the debt limit and the government is using what are called extraordinary measures to avoid default. Here's NPR's David Gura. In a letter to congressional leadership, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen urged lawmakers to act promptly to raise the debt limit to protect the full faith and credit of the U.S. But so far, there isn't a clear path forward for Congress to do that. Some Republicans say they intend to use the debt limit as leverage to get spending cuts. The extraordinary measures the Treasury Department is now taking, including the suspension of investments in a government retirement fund, will only work for a few months, Yellen says, until early June. If there's no resolution by then, the U.S. would default on its debt, which would roil global markets and have huge economic ramifications. David Gura, NPR News, New York. The White House warns there is no room for negotiation on the debt ceiling. It has to be raised. On Air Force One today, a top U.S. official cited a report that as many as six million jobs are on the line if the country defaults. Separately, the White House reacted to news out of New Zealand, where Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern says she's stepping down next month because of burnout. Ardern earned international praise for her leadership, especially in the aftermath of a 2019 mass shooting and measures she implemented early in the coronavirus pandemic. White House Principal Deputy Press Secretary Olivia Dalton fielded a question today about President Biden's re-election goals. It's been a wonderful two years. The president says that he intends to run, and um, I'm sure you all will be the first to know if he has more to share on that. Tomorrow is the second anniversary of Biden's inauguration. This hour, Biden and others are surveying recovery efforts in California, which suffered heavy losses from weeks of winter storms. At least 20 people died. Damage to the state could be in the hundreds of millions of dollars. Actor and producer Alec Baldwin faces criminal charges in the shooting death of a cinematographer, Helena Hutchins, on the set of the movie Rust. NPR's Mandalit El Barco reports the production's armor was also charged. Alec Baldwin and armorer Hannah Gutierrez-Reed each faced two counts of involuntary manslaughter, one of them punishable by five years in jail. In 2021, it was Baldwin who was holding a gun pointed at the camera where Helena Hutchins and director Joel Souza were standing when they were shot. Baldwin, the film's lead actor and producer, maintains he shouldn't be criminally responsible for being handed a loaded weapon. The New Mexico District Attorney's Office said in a statement that the evidence shows a pattern of criminal disregard for safety on the film set. Assistant Director David Hall signed a plea deal for his charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. Prosecutors are asking the court to give him a suspended sentence and probation. Mandalit del Barco, NPR News. On Wall Street, the Dow Jones Industrial Average closed down 252 points at 33,044. 
It's NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. The Massachusetts Department of Public Health reports today two residents of the state had a novel strain of gonorrhea that resisted typical treatment by antibiotics. The department says the Massachusetts cases are the first in the U.S. of this particular strain of the sexually transmitted bacterial infection. Both cases were ultimately cured with an antibiotic. The strain was first detected in Asia-Pacific countries and in the United Kingdom. The state's public health commissioner calls the discovery a serious public health concern and is urging all sexually active people to be regularly tested for sexually transmitted infections. A new report on child mental health services in Massachusetts shows challenges that existed before the pandemic have gotten worse. Karen Brown has more. The Massachusetts Association of Health Plans highlighted several long-standing problems, a fragmented system that leads to poor coordination of care, a shrinking workforce, and not enough access to community-based urgent care when a child is in crisis. She says the state's new expansion of behavioral health care helps address these problems by creating community mental health centers, mobile crisis teams, and a helpline. But experts say there should be a robust public information campaign to let families and primary care doctors know how to find and get those services. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown. Harvard's Kennedy School of Government has changed its position and will now offer a fellowship to a leading human rights advocate. Last year, the school rejected a fellowship offered to Kenneth Roth. He's the former executive director of the organization Human Rights Watch. Roth believes the rejection was over his group's criticism of Israel. Today, the Kennedy School's dean, Douglas Elmendorf, said that his decision to reject the fellowship offer was an error. He denies the original decision was made in an effort to limit debate about human rights in any country. Rain has arrived in the Boston area now. It's mixing with sleet in some spots, especially on the North Shore. There's snow in parts of Western Mass. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce says staying dry is going to be pretty tough through tomorrow. A bit of everything out there, though mostly rain through overnight tonight, except in far northern Massachusetts into southern New Hampshire, where areas of snow will accumulate three to six inches by early tomorrow morning. Otherwise, rain changes to snow in Boston late tomorrow morning and on the south shore tomorrow midday. I anticipate an inch or two of accumulation in the city, two to four inches north and west, a coating to an inch south of town and those higher totals from the Merrimack Valley, Route 2 quarter into southern New Hampshire. The snow will end tomorrow evening and then temperatures drop into the 20s with some icy spots, areas of minor coastal flooding during the high tide tomorrow morning. 39 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sony Pictures Classics, presenting The Sun, a film by Florian Zeller, starring Hugh Jackman and Laura Dern, about a father whose life is upended as he takes care of his son. Starts Friday. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Protesters in Peru are pressuring the country's new president to step down. Today, thousands of demonstrators flooded into the capital city of Lima. Protests and clashes with security forces have killed more than 50 people since Peru's former president tried to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. Those deaths have mainly impacted people in Peru's southern countryside. Enraged residents from those rural cities brought their demands to the capital today, and NPR's Kerry Khan is in Lima. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. Describe the situation right now in the capital city. 
I'm here near a well-known park. It's called Kennedy Park in Lima near downtown, and anti-government marchers have been streaming into the city and here for days. One group I was with came from the Andean Highland city of Ayacucho. Out of the 53 deaths of the past weeks, at least 10 were from Ayacucho. This is the worst violence, Ari, that Peru has seen, you know, due to political unrest in decades, and authorities today have brought in 12,000 officers to Lima and barricades are up all around key government buildings. These protests have been going on for more than a month. Mm -hmm. Remind us how it all started. Well, back in December, um, when the former president tried to dissolve Congress um, and was impeached and arrested, the demands then were to release him. He was this political newcomer from the rural south. His support is there, and that's where the protests began. But within weeks, the death toll toll started growing. Nearly all civilians by police forces, according to human rights advocates, and anger has just swelled as that death toll has increased. So what are protesters demanding now? Well, their demands have changed a little bit. They blame the current president, Dina Boluarte, for the deaths. They want her out, and they want new elections this year. But protesters from the South brought their demands directly to Lima. They're saying to the elite here, the urban well-do, they say ignore their plight. Here's Mirta Vasquez. She was prime minister under Castillo, but resigned after decrying corruption in his ranks. And she says, look, this huge gap between the urban elites and poor indigenous in the South must be addressed. She says these are historic demands. We want justice, equality. They must stop treating us like we don't exist, we don't matter, and above all, the killings must stop. You're based in Brazil, although we're speaking to you right now in Peru. You were just reporting on the storming of government buildings by supporters of the former far-right president there in the city of Brasilia. Now you're covering this unrest in Peru. Is democracy having a tough time in the region right now? Definitely, there there are challenges in both these countries. Brazil is holding up as authorities, you know, search for the perpetrators of those attacks, and they're 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 conducting widespread investigations. Peru is much more tenuous. Analysts tell me its political structure is very weak. Look, Ari, the current president doesn't even have a party. A political scientist, Alberto Vergara, here at the Pacific University, says democracy in Peru muddles on despite its politicians. Because it's the mediocrity of politicians what assures that no one is able to build an authoritarian regime. But but he did warn, and he's, he's very concerned. He thinks that the violence can get much worse here in Peru. So it doesn't look like an end is in sight, at least in the near term. No, it does not. NPR's Carrie Kahn covering those protests in Lima. Thank you for your reporting. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ari. Across the country, the high price of eggs has people scrambling. Get it? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Seriously, though, in December, the cost of eggs was up 60 percent over the previous year, according to the Consumer Price Index. Kendall Crawford of Harvest Public Media explains what's behind the increase. When you walk through the doors of the Sugar Shack Bakery in Sioux City, Iowa, the smell hits you right away. And people line up to order from the assortment of cakes and cookies on the shelves. All right, two caramels uh, and two red To make each sweet-smelling treat, it takes a whopping 300 eggs every two to three days. Lately, that's meant a much higher bill for Claudia Hessa, the bakery's owner. 
She says she's been spending more than double on them, and she can't double or triple sales to make up for it. You just can't. You wouldn't, you'd be out of business. So it's like, yeah, what do you do? The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says the average cost for grade A large carton of eggs last month was $4.25. In California, the average retail price is now around $7. And in the Midwest, January wholesale prices shot above $5, according to the USDA. Pat Westoff is director of the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute at the University of Missouri. He says egg prices are typically more volatile than other food commodities. It takes a pretty big increase in price to convince people not to buy quite as many eggs. So uh, a relatively modest percentage decline in production has resulted in a very large percentage increase in prices. And that shrinking supply is the result of a deadly bird flu, says analyst Maro Ibaburu of the Egg Industry Center. We lost 44 million laying hens last year because of avian influenza. So that really creates a reduction on the, on the number of eggs that can be produced. And 2022 marked one of the virus's deadliest outbreaks, which helped keep the prices high. New at noon, a disaster proclamation is issued for a county in northwest Iowa over the bird flu. The proclamation from Governor Kim Reynolds... When the virus is detected in one bird, Federal law requires that all remaining birds be culled to keep the highly pathogenic virus from spreading. Last March, one of the country's biggest egg producers, Rembrandt Enterprises, had to cull a flock of more than 5 million hens. And major bird losses continued throughout September, right before winter, when eggs hit peak demand. At the Hy-Vee grocery store in Sioux City, the price of eggs made Lisa Gonzoli decide not to buy any. No, it's just ridiculous. She says when she started having to pay more than $5 for a dozen, she considered excluding them from her grocery list entirely. But we're having a baby shower this weekend and we need more eggs. So my daughter's in-laws are coming down from Minnesota and they're bringing three dozen eggs from the farm. That way she can save and still bake for her guests. But even if you don't have an in like Gonzoli, relief may be coming soon. The USDA is forecasting better days, a 30% drop from some of the highest prices. So if bird flu doesn't cause another disruption, buyers could be shelling out a little less next season. For NPR News, I'm Kendall Crawford in Sioux City. The U.N. called it a sobering milestone last year. For the first time on record, the number of people forcibly displaced from their homes around the world reached 100 million. Now the State Department is trying to make it easier for everyday Americans to help some of those refugees resettle in the U.S. Today, it announced a new private sponsorship program, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. This new pilot program is called the Welcome Corps. And the State Department is calling it the boldest innovation in refugee resettlement in four decades. The Welcome Corps invites Americans to do what we do best, welcoming newcomers, being good guides, neighbors, and friends. At a press briefing today, Assistant Secretary of State Julieta Noyes explained how the program will work. Groups of ordinary U.S. citizens and permanent residents can volunteer to sponsor refugees from around the world. These could be faith-based groups, colleges or universities, veterans associations, or just a group of friends, as long as they can raise enough money, pass a background check, and commit to doing the work. It's a lot of work involved in, in sponsoring a refugee, finding schools, helping them find affordable housing, 
getting their kids signed up for school, helping them find jobs, showing them where the pharmacy is, what bus to take. Until now, the State Department has relied primarily on professional resettlement organizations to do this work. But those groups have been struggling to rebuild after deep cuts to the number of refugees the U.S. admitted under former President Trump. The Welcome Corps will start small, with a goal of resettling 5,000 refugees in the first year. Still, advocates say this new private sponsorship model could mark a significant shift in how the U.S. refugee system works. Sasha Chanoff is with Refuge Point, a nonprofit that has advised the State Department on this new program. It broadens the opportunities for Americans to welcome refugees here in a new way. More people, more organizations, more geographies and locations that are able to welcome refugees. The Welcome Corps is modeled on earlier efforts to resettle Afghans and Ukrainians through private sponsorship. Last year, we talked to one Afghan family who fled the fall of Kabul and resettled in Alabama, where they were welcomed by a group of sponsors, including Ben Johnson, an Army veteran who served in Afghanistan. I am fully aware that a lot of people I served with were, the Afghans I served with, were killed. So when we got the chance to repay this kind of personal debt, I had to say yes. That is how the Johnsons came to meet Sharifa Hafuri, her husband and their six kids. He had worked as a security guard at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Hafuri says they had no relatives in the U.S. and no friends. But that changed pretty quickly once they arrived in Huntsville. Their sponsors helped them find a house and learn how to drive. I like driving. <laughs> what are you going to do when you can drive? Where are you going to go? I will go to work at uh, uh, university. I want to go to university also. I like to learn a lot. That was back in April. Now, Sharifa and her husband both have their driver's licenses and jobs. And they become close friends with Ben and his wife, Julie Johnson. The Johnsons say the experience has been, quote, life-changing, not only for the Hoferies, but for their own family, too. Joel Rose, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on All Things Considered, are we relying too much on at-home rapid COVID tests that may give us a false sense of security? Stocks slid on Wall Street today. The Dow and S&P both lost three-quarters of a percent. That brought the Dow to a close of 33,045, the S&P to 38.99. The Nasdaq gave up nearly a full percent to close at 10,852. Federal Reserve Bank of Boston President Susan Collins says rural areas and small cities in New England need support to keep the region's economy growing. She told a conference of economic, business, and policy leaders today, the region's economy is being challenged by more people working remotely and the population growing more slowly. Collins says the Boston Fed is working with communities that have yet to adapt their economies after the decline of manufacturing. In part, she says, it's helping them compete for grants and private sector funding. It's 419. 
WBUR supporters include Eversource, a proud sponsor of Mass Save, energy saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. Check back on the news and forecast with WBUR again this evening. Tap on the WBUR mobile app to listen while you're stuck in traffic on the way home from work or heading out for the night. There's a coastal flood advisory in effect until noon tomorrow. The area is affected. Parts of Essex, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Suffolk counties look out for flooding in low-lying areas, including parks and roadways, especially around high tide. Support for NPR comes from this station and from UMA, a cloud-based phone service for any size business with an automated virtual receptionist, video meetings, and other features to connect to customers and coworkers anywhere at uma.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. When legal executions are carried out in the U.S., the few members of the public who are allowed to attend are forbidden to tape or photograph what they witness. But NPR investigative reporter Kiara Eisner obtained audio that was taped behind the scenes during four executions from the point of view of prison staff. Just a warning, we're going to play some of that audio from those executions, which some listeners might find disturbing. 35 years ago in Virginia, just minutes before a man was scheduled to die by electrocution, employees at the prison started taping what they were seeing. What you're about to hear next are moments drawn from that tape. Have you got the recorder on? Yes, it's on. Go. This is the first time any part of that audio has been played for the public. The inmate is being removed from the cell, being led to the chamber. The inmate is now strapped into the chair. The first charge has been applied. These kinds of recordings are typically closely guarded by the government. I didn't get these from the prison, though. I found them in the Library of Virginia. But even there, the records had been kept hidden for more than a decade. Roger Christman is one of the state archivists. So we have erroneously restricted them. So the tapes were restricted until I asked for them? Essentially, yes. We were following the 50-year guideline that the Department of Corrections had put on the earlier execution files we had here. There's a law in Virginia that says the Department of Corrections can restrict files about executions for 50 years after the prisoner dies. The library originally thought that law applied to them, too. After I argued that law shouldn't apply, the archivists gave me the tapes. But the story of how the audio arrived at the library in the first place really starts in the house of an 82-year-old man named R.M. Oliver. As I recall, he contacted us and said he had some Department of Corrections material and could we come and take a look at it? Interesting. So y'all went to his house to pick up the files? We went to his house and when we got there, he brought out this nice brown suitcase essentially and said, this is what I have to donate. Oliver said he felt the tapes were important when he donated them in 2006. 
And he was right. Not only do they explain step-by-step how executions were carried out in Virginia, they provide a rare glimpse into the relationships between the prisoners and the workers who were executing them. Alton Way's last words were captured on this tape just minutes before he was executed. I would like to express what is about to be taken here as a murder. Did you read that? Yeah, I'm trying to get it. I would like to express that what is about to take place here is a murder and something about he doesn't hold that against anyone and he loves everyone. What Way actually said was that he forgave everyone who was involved with his murder. Key place and proper position, warden nod, execution is taking place. How had records this important ended up outside prison walls in somebody's briefcase? Roger said he had asked that question to the donor, R.M. Oliver. He said he used to work at the Department of Corrections. Oliver had been the agency's director at one time, but he had left that position more than a decade before any of the four executions took place. Since Oliver passed away years ago, I visited his son, Stephen. It was pouring outside as we ran for cover into his house in Richmond. I'm sorry the house is a mess, but... Oh no, we're sorry we're a little late. We got you all set up in the uh, kitchen. I showed the original briefcase to Stephen. The archivist, Roger, had kept the bag that had carried the tapes all this time in his office and had given me permission to take it from the library. Does this look like something your dad would have? I don't even remember seeing that briefcase. He may have had it hidden in a closet somewhere. Dad kept it a, a secret from us. There were certainly reasons people may have wanted to keep the tape secret. One of them indicated that staff were unprepared to handle one of the most important calls that can be made during an execution. Ms. Ranji, we need get 306 clear. The governor's office is calling. The governor is the only person with the power to save the prisoner's life, even at that final moment. Debbie, they're strapping him in the chair. Hold on a minute. For more than two minutes, they struggled to connect the phone call from the governor as the prisoner sat strapped to the electric chair, just waiting. Hang that one, hang it up. Tell him we'll call him back. Boggs ended up being executed. The governor hadn't wanted to save his life. Had he felt differently, though, Virginia could have come close to executing a man the governor had pardoned. But the last tape in the briefcase revealed an even more serious oversight. The state may have tried to cover up key parts of the execution of a black man named Wilbert Lee Evans. The team is continuing to strap Evans into the chair. It's now 11 o'clock. What happened next on the tape sounds very different from what reporters who witnessed the execution said they observed. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reported that after the first volt of electricity hit Evans, he started bleeding from his face. It's 11.04, the first surge of electricity has been administered. A reporter from the Alexandria Journal said it was then that the blood started bubbling down his belly and onto his shirt. But there's no mention of any of that on the recording. 11.05, second surge of electricity has been administered. Even after that, she still didn't say anything. If the local journalists hadn't reported what happened, the prison's official tape would have made it seem like Evans' face hadn't bled at all. It's 11.09. The inmate has expired. I asked the Department of Corrections whether they had any more execution tapes, and they said that they did. They had seven. But they refused to provide any of those. 
they also declined an interview to talk to me about why. Ian Kalish is an attorney who teaches at the University of Virginia's law school. I think that these types of records are really key to facilitating public oversight and, you know, holding public bodies and, you know, government actors accountable. Virginia executed more people in its history than any other state in America before it abolished the death penalty in 2021. Kalish believes the public deserves to know what happened in its death chamber. It's very concerning to me that, you know, this type of information is being withheld. Today, most executions across the U.S. are carried out by lethal injection. But execution workers still made mistakes during more than a third of the ones that were attempted last year. Blair Andres leads the U.S. death penalty casework for a nonprofit called Reprieve that advocates against lethal injection. States have increasingly resorted to secrecy in the execution process. Last year, Alabama took more than three hours to execute Joe Nathan James Jr. The staff said nothing out of the ordinary happened. But Reprieve helped arrange an autopsy of his body. It showed multiple bruises and puncture wounds. I reached out to the Alabama Department of Corrections for comment on the autopsy results, and they didn't reply. Blair says the state's lack of transparency is suspicious. If the state is doing everything correctly, then they shouldn't have anything to hide. So it does raise the question, what is the state trying to cover up? That's also a question in Virginia. As long as the Department of Corrections refuses to release the rest of the execution tapes, the public won't know the answer. Kiara Eisner, NPR News, Richmond. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. The forecast wet weather has moved in. Rain, some sleet around the region now. Snowfall north of the Turnpike. Tonight should bring rain mixed with some snow up by the New Hampshire border, amounting to three to six inches there. Tomorrow, rain and snowfall moving toward Boston, leaving two inches at most, two to four inches north and west of the city. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 23rd. Semesteroff.com. Hey, this is Steve Inskeep with the Morning Edition. Mary Louise Kelly from All Things Considered. And I'm Lisa Mullins at WBUR. You know, my favorite car ever was my parents' Chevrolet Impala. My favorite all-time car was a little red Mini. My parents' red VW Bug painted white to make it look bigger. I don't know where that car is today, but I do know that an old car can be really valuable. Favorite or not, your current car can be turned into all things considered. It can be turned into Morning Edition. Go to WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. $31 trillion, that's how much debt the U.S. government has racked up. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the agency has begun extraordinary measures to avoid a government default. Those special measures come ahead of what's likely to be a big political standoff over the debt ceiling. As NPR's Susan Davis tells us, Republicans are warning they intend to use the debt limit as leverage to impose spending cuts. Like in 2011, you have a new Republican majority in the House, Democrats in control of the Senate and the White House. So the politics, the power politics seem to echo 2011. This time, I think Democrats are even more dug in in rejecting any entrees to negotiate on the debt limit. I think part of that is the president and Senate Democrats led by Chuck Schumer think it's better policy not to entertain the idea that the debt limit is a bargaining chip. NPR's Susan Davis. 
U.S. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin met his newly appointed German counterpart today. They talked about U.S. tank deliveries to Ukraine, as we hear from NPR's Rob Schmitz. Germany's new defense minister, Boris Pistorius, met with Austin in Berlin a day ahead of a meeting with Ukraine allies at the U.S. airbase in Rammstein, Germany, where the U.S. plans to announce a broad package of military aid for Kyiv. Pistorius said German weapon systems delivered so far to Ukraine have proven their worth and that aid would continue into the future. But he did not mention whether Germany would approve the delivery of German-made Leopard 2 battle tanks that Ukraine has long sought. German media reports Chancellor Olaf Scholz spoke to President Biden this week and stressed that the U.S. should send Abrams tanks if it wants Germany to send Leopard tanks. Washington has said Abrams tanks are too much maintenance. Rob Schmitz, NPR News, Berlin. Another bumpy day on Wall Street. Stocks finish lower across the board. The Dow down three quarters of a percent. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of Boston's Federal Reserve Bank is predicting more interest rate hikes in the near future. President Susan Collins told a conference today she thinks the Fed will raise rates another three quarters to one percent to combat inflation. Recent economic data have shown inflation is slowing nationally, but is still higher than the Federal Reserve's target. Collins says she thinks the Fed will eventually raise rates to just above 5 percent and keep them there for a while. The Harvard Kennedy School has reversed course and awarded a fellowship to Kenneth Roth. He is the former head of the organization Human Rights Watch. Kennedy School Dean Douglas Elmendorf withheld a fellowship in August. Roth says that's because he has criticized Israeli human rights violations, Roth has. He says he will take part in the fellowship but feels uneasy about the meaning of the reversal. Is this a broad commitment to academic freedom regardless of who criticizes Israel? Or is it simply in my case because I have a high profile? And we don't know the answer to that. Dean Elmendorf said today he believes he made an error by failing to appoint Roth last summer. The Massachusetts Nurses Association is leading a new legislative effort to establish limits on the number of patients a nurse needs to care for during a shift. The union says the pandemic worsened the workload for caregivers and has contributed to a growing crisis. The nurses want to pass a law to compel the Department of Public Health to establish regulations with specific patient limits. The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association says any new approach will require unity and flexibility among care workers to meet the needs of patients. And the city of Boston is moving forward with a plan to permanently close part of Dartmouth Street to traffic, the areas between the Public Library and Copley Square. The Boston Planning and Development Authority says a 10-day test of the idea last year found minimal impact on traffic. The authority found the added foot traffic and bike access improved community life by allowing activities such as yoga classes and block parties. The authority is expected to vote tonight on whether to hire a consultant to design the project. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bassberry and Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at bassberry.com. This afternoon and evening, weather befitting the month. There's rain, sleet, and snow in the mix tonight. Mainly rain, except for snow up along the border with New Hampshire. Could have three to six inches there by daybreak tomorrow. Tomorrow morning, some rain and snow closer to Boston, then moving closer to the south shore by midday. Could have an inch or two collecting in Boston, about two to four north and west of the city, only an inch or less on the south shore. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, 
plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. And from Heather Sturt Haga and Paul G. Haga, supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. It's been three years since COVID-19 was first detected in the United States. And for some, at-home COVID tests have become a part of everyday life. You dutifully swab your nostrils before a dinner party, wait 15 minutes for the all-clear, then text the host negative before leaving home. But some experts warn the tests could be giving us a false sense of security. NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here to talk about that. Hi, Sydney. Hi, Ari. All right, there's been Delta, Omicron, and several Omicron subvariants. Are the newer variants tripping up rapid at-home tests? For the most part, they're not. As the virus evolves, scientists are mainly seeing changes in its spike protein, which is what the virus uses to attack and enter healthy cells. But the rapid antigen tests aren't looking for that spike protein located on the surface of the virus. They're looking for a protein inside it called a nucleocapsid, and that really hasn't changed. Federal health agencies are monitoring the situation in case it does. So far, they have only identified one test that's been rendered less reliable in the face of these new variants. Well, if the new variants are not tripping up the tests, why do we so often hear about people who test negative for days or a week and then finally learn that they're positive? You know, doctors are seeing that, but so far, it's just anecdotal. It could be driven by a few things. But Dr. Jeffrey Baird, chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at the University of Washington School of Medicine, says he thinks it's probably human error. Some people even get boogers on the swab, mistakenly thinking mucus will have plenty of virus in it. There's some people who think that, you know, well, you rub it in my mouth and my nose and get a big glob of snot on that because you actually you don't want snot on the thing. So some people are going to put snot on it or blood on it or something like that. You know, there's things that you're not supposed to do. There are a lot of differences between these at-home antigen tests and the PCR tests done in the lab. And one of them is that the lab folks are trained and labs are inspected to make sure everyone is doing everything right. Can you say, relatively speaking, how well home tests work relative to the PCR tests at the lab? You know, there's certainly a time and a place for the home tests, but Baird really warns that their powers are limited. Similar technology has existed for influenza for years, and the recommendation was not to use them because they didn't work because they were not sensitive enough. By sensitivity, he means they're just not as good at finding the virus as lab tests. They need more of it to register positive. But lab tests can detect the virus from trace amounts because the technology they use allows the virus's genetic material to amplify, usually over a day or two. Home tests are quicker, but they really shouldn't be used to rule out a COVID infection, according to the CDC. And so if the recommendation is not to use at-home flu tests, should we not be relying on at-home COVID tests? You can take them and might even find out you have COVID, but take the negative with a grain of salt. It cannot guarantee that everyone is in the clear, as much as we wish that were the case. That's especially true for asymptomatic people. So in a review of more than 100 studies looking at antigen tests, researchers found that they are considerably less accurate in people without signs or symptoms of COVID. But a positive is almost always true. Here's Dr. Robin Colgrove, a professor at Harvard Medical School and chair of the Diagnostics Committee of the Infectious Diseases Society of America. The positive test is almost always true 
So in a person with an exposure or a person with suggestive symptoms, if they do a test and it's positive, you're done. You have your diagnosis. And if you have COVID-19 symptoms, even if your test is negative, it's a good idea to be cautious and just stay home. That's NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lapkin. Thanks. You bet. Japa is a playful Nigerian word that's trending in that West African country for all the wrong reasons. It's Yoruba for runaway or escape, and many young Nigerians are doing just that in the thousands, leaving the country in search of a better life abroad. It was and still is a sort of comical expression, but it has also evolved into a more serious national talking point ahead of next month's elections, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from Lagos. Japa, a single word which sums up the desire that many young Nigerians have to leave their country. You discover there is a movement many of us who are youth here know, they call it Japa. People running out of the country just anyhow. Pastors preach about it and it's discussed on radio shows. Let's talk about what's trending hmm. right now. What's trending right now, of course, we can't hide it. It's Japa, left, right and center. The word even surfaces in song. Japa, 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 like this hit track by Afropop star Naira Mali. The word has evolved and has come to define the high number of people leaving Africa's largest economy. It's even an issue ahead of next month's presidential election. We cannot all Japa, let's fix Nigeria, is a campaign slogan for one of the leading candidates. Stop any young person on a street in Nigeria, like here in Lagos, and you'll find someone who either wants to Japa or knows someone who has. The trigger for this has been a crumbling economy and rising insecurity. Nearly half of young people are unemployed. And in a country where two-thirds of the population are under 30, the impact can be felt across Nigerian life. We Nigerians are suffering a lot. And to be fat, to be sincere, we had a lot of problems in Nigeria. Taibat Rahim says she would leave if she could afford the ticket. There are no comprehensive figures for this latest Japa wave but everyone in Nigeria has been affected by it. You have to think about why are all these people leaving? The answer is they don't see hope. Chioma Aguebo founded a women-focused tech company in Abuja. A few years ago, she noticed that one by one, her close friends were leaving Nigeria. Between 2020 and today, of my five friends, four left. You can't quantify the loss of community just from people leaving. It's the absence of hope. People are watching their savings just come to nothing. In this climate, online communities and influencers are becoming an important touch point for young Nigerians trying to leave. How can I apply for a U.S. visa? Go to the ustraveldocs.com slash One popular influencer is 36-year-old Funke Ogunkoya Futi, or Sassy Funke, as she's known on TikTok. Over time, I've noticed on YouTube, there are a lot more videos of people just, you know, finally I'm out, or even on Twitter, it's, it's like celebrated. Ogunkoya Futi literally gets millions of people viewing her TikToks for advice on leaving. And in a way, her success makes her worry about the exodus of talent. Who's going to be running our hospitals, right? Who's going to be taking care of our healthcare if everyone's leaving? So it's actually, it's going to trickle down and start affecting everybody else in Nigeria. I'm hopeful that these people, in a way, acquire the skills they need. And maybe in 10 years, they come back. Chioma Aguebo finally left the country last year, like many of her friends did. It's almost like the ship is sinking and everyone's just like, how quickly can you get out? She says she never planned to leave, but it became inevitable. She wanted to stay and help build a future in her own country. But increasingly, she felt it was hard to see one. 
Emmanuel Akimo to NPR News, Lagos. All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The parade of storms that hammered California has finally ended. President Biden is in the state today touring damaged areas. In the Santa Cruz Mountains along the state's central coast, residents are starting the long process of recovery. From member station KAZU, Jeremiah Etting reports. Felton is a small, quirky town in the Santa Cruz Mountains. It's surrounded by towering redwoods, a main street with restaurants and bars, even a Bigfoot museum. But in the last few weeks of rain, parts of town have flooded again and again. Communities like this one are just starting to recover all across the state. And just like elsewhere, some people were hit harder than others. For some, cleaning up is overwhelming. I never experienced nothing like this in my life, and I'm 58 years old. Never seen nothing like this. Clarence McComb rents a two-story house in a small neighborhood of Felton, close to the San Lorenzo River. Most of the year, the river is peaceful. But as it swelled with one rainstorm after another, it swallowed the neighborhood and destroyed McComb's ground floor. Everything is gone but the freezer, refrigerator, and stove. So we lost everything else. The water got about chest high. You can see its mark on fences and the sides of homes. Now the street looks like a riverbed covered in a thick layer of mud. McCombs' landlord says it will be weeks of repairs before people can return home. I mean, look at it. I mean, the mud, I don't know how we're going to get rid of this mud. On Saturday, President Biden declared a major disaster in Santa Cruz County. At least one person died in the storms here, at least 20 deaths statewide. The county estimates more than $55 million in damages. But just a short walk up a slight hill from McCombs' place are some middle-class homes, many built to withstand flooding. It's still wet and muddy, but far less dire. Cassie Miller pushes water and silt out of her garage with a giant squeegee. Miller says after years of living here, she and her family are prepared. We have squeegees and shovels and wheelbarrows and all the things we need to to do our own job. Miller was told to evacuate three times in less than three weeks. Everybody's a little downtrodden. But because of the way her house is built, things aren't that bad. Downstairs is just a garage. They live upstairs. Despite the evacuation orders, her family stayed behind. Our living area is super safe, so we clear out our vehicles and raise things up as much as we can and make a pot of coffee and watch. Many of Miller's neighbors also remained. The sheriff's office actually made them sign waivers if they didn't evacuate, saying they understood the risks. Heather Azim and her husband Merdad signed one, which she says was unnerving. It does that little switch in your brain is like, oh... Okay, but they have to do that. 
they've lived in the neighborhood for 20 years. They've evacuated for fires in the past, but Merdad says floods seem less threatening. If you have a two-story house and the foundation is very solid, it's, it's more annoying. <laughs> he says despite the floods and fires, living here is worth it. There is so many beautiful, sweet memories in this house that I won't allow some flooding and some mud to destroy the, the experience of this place for me. In the end, the Azim say they'll be fine. The road toward recovery is much longer and less certain for renter Clarence McComb, who lives just around the corner. He's taking stock of everything he's lost, which is, well, almost everything. For the people that don't have no money, then what you gonna do? You gotta get out there and do it yourself. Which is what he's doing working with his landlord to rebuild as soon as they can. For NPR News, I'm Jeremiah Edding in Felton, California. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up, how the San Francisco 49ers quarterback Brock Purdy went on a journey from Mr. Irrelevant to football superstar. And later in the next hour, why the New Zealand prime minister has decided to step down. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Catchlight Painting, committed to meticulous interior and exterior painting, including new and historic properties. See their portfolio at catchlightpainting.com. There is a coastal flood advisory in effect until noon tomorrow. The affected areas are parts of Essex, Norfolk, Suffolk, and Plymouth counties. Look out for flooding in low-lying areas, including parks and roadways, especially right around high tide. Rain and some sleet around the region now. Snowfall north of the Turnpike. Tonight should bring mix of rain and some snow up by the New Hampshire border, amounting to somewhere around 3 to 6 inches there. Tomorrow, rain and snowfall moving toward Boston, maybe 2 inches at most on the ground, 2 to 4 inches north and west of the city. WBUR supporters include UMass Chan Medical School, proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And Sony Pictures Classics with Turn Every Page, a new film about the 50-year relationship between writer Robert Caro and his editor Robert Gottlieb, now playing in theaters. The Buffalo Blizzard was like no other. So usually I actually put on my snowshoes and I'll snowshoe in, but this time I actually couldn't make it to the store for about three or four days. I'm Amy Scott, the lasting damage from that holiday storm, next time on Marketplace. Tonight at 6.30 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Right now, someone is speaking or thinking in a language that is on the verge of disappearing. Of the world's roughly 7,000 spoken languages, one dies every 40 days, according to one estimate. Languages like Babanki, spoken in Cameroon, or Nalik, heard on an island in Papua New Guinea. And some of the places where rare languages are the most concentrated are also most vulnerable to climate change. Linguists call global warming the final nail in the coffin for more than half of humanity's languages. Karen McVie wrote about this for The Guardian. Welcome. Thank you. Let's start with a specific example. Tell us about the island nation of Vanuatu. Vanuatu is a South Pacific island nation. It's very small, but it has 
110 languages are spoken there, which is the highest density of languages in the world. And it's also one of the nations most vulnerable to climate change. Exactly. It is also one of the countries most at risk of sea level rise and climate change. Um, And here you find this kind of sort of perfect storm. Um, Linguists say that many small linguistic communities, perhaps there's only 100 people speak the language or something like that, are on islands and coastlines vulnerable to hurricanes, to weather and sea level rise. And so if rising seas or storms displace those people and they wind up in, I don't know, Indonesia or Australia, what happens to the language that those hundred people speak? Well, what often happens is that they they aren't necessarily displaced with the same people in their community. And also, even if they are displaced with other people in their community, the children will often adopt the language of you know Indonesia or Australia or whatever the dominant language there because they get it's economically advantageous for them to speak the new language the dominant language and the the language kind of dies a language is much more than words like i'm thinking about the specificity of yiddish curses there's one that says all his teeth should fall out except one to make him suffer. Like, that's such a Yiddish way of viewing the world. Yeah. And so is the loss of the language itself just a small piece of what's happening? I think absolutely it is, because the language carries so much local knowledge and culture. Like, there's a single word in Greenlandic, which is vulnerable, but but still spoken. And translated, it means something like a strong afternoon wind that comes from the fjord. But it has more than that. It's a very kind of specific meaning. When locals translate it, they say something like the wind in the fjord that comes in from the sea and it can be hard to get home. But once you're out of the fjord, it's nice weather. So Mm. they're describing a local weather pattern. Yeah. Yeah. So it describes so much more. There's so much culturally lost when a language dies. What did you learn about efforts to slow this trend? Well, there have been massive efforts, particularly in Hawaii and also in New Zealand. In the 1970s, there was something like um, 2,000 native speakers of Hawaiian remained. But activists launched these immersion schools where children are taught from birth usually by kind of grandparents and now more than 18,700 people speak it and the same thing happened in New Zealand in the 1970s only five percent of young Maori people spoke the language but now something like 25 percent now speak it. Karen McVie is a senior reporter for The Guardian and her piece about disappearing languages is called Lost for Words, Fears of Catastrophic Language Loss Due to Rising Seas. It's been good talking with you. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Eight teams will play football this weekend in the NFL's divisional playoffs, all eyeing a spot in the Super Bowl. The San Francisco 49ers, who play the Cowboys Sunday, are led by a rookie quarterback, Brock Purdy. He's making history and inciting joy on his team. Matt Barrows covers the 49ers for The Athletic and joins us now to talk about all of this. Welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for being on. Okay, so Brock Purdy, this guy, as we say, he's a rookie. Tell us more about him. Well, he's not just a rookie. He's uh, what they call Mr. Irrelevant in the (laughs) NFL, which means that he was the very last guy picked in the NFL draft. So 
You can sort of picture being on a uh, playground as a kid and you're the last guy picked for the team. And by last guy, I'm talking, he was the 262nd pick. Wow. So the fact that he's had so much success, not only as a rookie, but as the last guy chosen in the draft, yeah. that's what's made him such a big story in San Francisco. And can you tell us, like, how exactly the story happened? Like, how did the last pick in the draft wind up starting for a Super Bowl favorite? Well, it's a story of, of injuries. The 49ers had two big injuries to their top two quarterbacks, which usually means that the season is sunk. Like, a, a team cannot overcome that challenge. And so uh, the 49ers were doing very well. They were in the midst of a winning streak. And, and their second quarterback, a guy named Jimmy Garoppolo, breaks his foot. And so you thought at that moment that, oh, boy, this is, this is the death blow. They're not going to be able to overcome this. So in came... Brock Purdy is kind of small, doesn't have a big arm. Nobody had any big expectations from him. And he was good from the get-go, and he's kept that streak going. And now the 49ers look like they're, you know, if not the top team in the National Football Conference, they're one of the two top teams and that they may be contending for a Super Bowl. I love it. I love the storyline of how a guy that nobody initially had faith in is now a star. Can you say that someone like Brock Purdy is defying the conventional wisdom about rookie quarterbacks? Yeah, for sure. And, and not just rookie quarterbacks, but height is usually something that these uh, these teams are seeking. He doesn't have what they call a big arm. I mean, he's not flinging the ball 55 yards down the field. Uh -huh. He's defined the conventional a wisdom of what makes up a great quarterback. His really special ability is between the shoulder pads. It's his brain. And he's very calm. He hasn't been rattled to this point. It's been one, one challenge after another. His biggest one is coming up on Sunday against the Dallas Cowboys. But he's risen to every challenge to this point. Hmm. It's been impressive to watch. So what will you be watching for in Purdy's game on Sunday as they try to beat the Cowboys? Well, the Cowboys are coming off their own big win. They they went into to Tampa Bay, and they, they beat Tom Brady and the Buccaneers, and that offense looked really good. So the question is whether Purdy and the 49ers can keep pace with the Dallas Cowboys in this game. And it could be a very high-scoring game, a game in the, in the 30s or maybe even higher than that. And so the question is whether he can sort of have the same offensive output as his counterpart with the Cowboys. You're actually making me maybe tune in to a football game this Sunday. <laughs> See, we've, we've created another NFL fan. My job is done here. <laughs> Matt Barrows of The Athletic, thank you so much. You're welcome. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at alignprobiotics.com. And from the Lemelson Foundation, dedicated to inspiring and enabling the next generation of inventors to improve lives around the world. More information is available at lemelson.org. And from the Doris Duke Charitable Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. 
and from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. This is WBUR, kind of messy out there today, mostly rain tonight, although the Massachusetts-New Hampshire border should have areas of snow accumulating to 3 to 6 inches by early tomorrow morning. The rain-snow line pushes into Boston late tomorrow morning, moving to the south by midday. Totals an inch or two in the city, 2 to 4 inches north and west of Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Direct Tire and Auto Service, proud to support WBUR and public radio to help keep quality programming alive. DirectTire.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The U.S. has reached a dead limit, so now extraordinary measures are needed to avoid a default. $32 trillion deficit or debt is outrageous when you only have a $20 trillion economy. That ratio is a very dangerous ratio. More on the negotiations surrounding the debt ceiling coming up on this Thursday, January 19th. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in a surprise announcement, New Zealand's popular prime minister says she is stepping down from office. In many ways, she was the anti-Trump figure. You know, she went off to the United Nations and she decried isolationism. More on the resignation coming up. Also, Nina Totenberg reports the Supreme Court says it's not able so far to determine who leaked the Dobbs decision last summer that overturned Roe versus Wade. These stories, the numbers from Wall Street, coming up, it's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. President Biden is getting a first-hand look at some of the storm damage that's occurred over the last few weeks in California. Flooding, landslides, and heavy snows have damaged hundreds of homes there. It resulted in at least 20 deaths. Member station KAZU Jeremiah Edding reports the president's visit includes several stops along the state's central coast. The state has suffered nearly three weeks of consecutive atmospheric rivers. Storms that brought torrential downpours along the coast and multiple feet of snow in the mountains. State officials estimate at least $1 billion in damage. Both the president and California Governor Gavin Newsom declared the recent storms a major disaster. The last of these storms hit the region Monday night. With a break in the rain, California residents are just beginning to recover. Reporter Jeremiah Edding. Jurors in the seditious conspiracy trial against leaders of the Proud Boys are hearing from a filmmaker who embedded with a far-right group. NPR's Kerry Johnson reports the jury is getting an inside view of the weeks leading up to the January 6th assault on the U.S. Capitol. Filmmaker Nick Quested says the Proud Boys became part of the national conversation after then-President Donald Trump told them to stand back and stand by. Quested met Proud Boys chairman Enrique Tarrio in December 2020 before a rally in Washington. He filmed Tarrio again one day before the Capitol siege, capturing the Proud Boys leader saying, quote, I don't need to be in D.C. to keep the fight going. Tario was not on the Capitol grounds January 6th, but prosecutors say he directed the group from afar. Tario's lawyers say the Justice Department is overhyping the case and making their client a scapegoat for the attack. 
Carrie Johnson, NPR News, Washington. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen is in Africa on an 11-day trip to promote trade and the U.S. commitment to African economies. The trip follows President Biden's promise of more engagement with the continent amid a backdrop of robust Chinese and Russian ties. NPR's Emmanuel Akawoto reports. Janet Yellen is in the Senegalese capital, Dakar, her first stop on a tour also including South Africa and Zambia. Yellen plans to promote investment and closer economic ties with African countries, which have lagged behind ties between Africa and China. Loans and development assistance from China have funded swathes of African development and infrastructure projects. Yellen's trip comes as the Chinese foreign minister departed Africa and Russia's foreign minister is due to arrive soon. African countries hope greater U.S. engagement leads to a real boost in trade and development, while the U.S. hopes the trip will cement its renewed commitment to the world's fastest-growing continent. Emmanuel Akimotu, NPR News, Lagos. The Supreme Court now says it is still not determined who was behind the leak of a draft opinion by the court on its move to overturn abortion rights eight months ago. Politico published the leaked information. On Wall Street today, stocks lost ground. The Dow fell 252 points. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Congresswoman Ayanna Presley says she will not predict how Congress will respond after the U.S. hit its debt ceiling today. Republicans control the House and say they won't lift the debt cap unless the government reduces spending. Presley says the first few weeks of the 118th Congress are an indication of what's to come. Here's WBUR's Amanda Beland. If they show you who they are, believe them. That's the message from Presley. She tells Radio Boston that Republicans are governing with chaos, from a prolonged vote for Speaker to potential stalling on a traditionally procedural vote to raise the debt ceiling. The good news is I'm battle-tested and I'm ready to do the work of of harm mitigation while also um, working earnestly and creatively and diligently with the White House uh, and also with the corner office here in Massachusetts to ensure that we are meeting the needs of the people who have entrusted us with this responsibility. Presley says she will continue to make the case why Democrats need to take back the House in 2024. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Amanda Beland. The police commissioner in Cambridge says her department limits the use of force as much as possible. Cambridge police shot and killed a man earlier this month after he allegedly brandished a long knife at officers. Commissioner Kristen Elo calls Arif Syed Faisal's death a tragedy, but she told a community meeting last night her department is one of the most progressive in the country because of robust training programs. Training such as crisis intervention, defensive tactics, managing aggressive behavior, mental health first aid, and trauma-informed policing. We train on use of force four times per year, exceeding the state requirements. Advocates for the man killed say he was experiencing a mental health crisis and that officers did not need to shoot him. They're asking the city to fund alternative ways to respond to behavioral health emergencies. And Arlington police have arrested a man in connection with an alleged home improvement scam. Police arrested 23-year-old Jack Clark of Boston after they were contacted by a resident who claimed two men charged him an excessive amount of money for home improvement work, damaged his property, and then charged him more money for the repairs, and then disappeared. Police arrested Clark when he returned to the house to get the tools left behind. Three other men were also arrested in connection with a separate home improvement scam last week. Police say check and make sure contractors are registered with the state before you hire them. Some messy weather has arrived, including a mix of sleet and rain in the Boston area and snow north and west of 495. The State Department of Transportation is urging drivers to be cautious. WBR meteorologist Daniel Noyce has the update on the forecast. 
Rain, snow, and some minor coastal flooding with this storm. Mainly rain through tonight, although the Mass New Hampshire border areas of snow will accumulate three to six inches by early tomorrow morning. The rain-snow line will push into Boston late tomorrow morning, moving to the south shore by midday. Snow totals an inch or two in the city, two to four inches north and west, according to an inch on the south shore and those higher totals far northern Massachusetts. Any lingering snow ends tomorrow evening. Expect some icy spots with lows dropping into the 20s tomorrow night. Again, be careful out there if you're driving or walking in the area now. 37 degrees in Boston at 507. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Fox with the new crime anthology series, Accused. Every week, a new case, a different defendant, and an unpredictable story designed to keep viewers guessing. Accused, series premiere Sunday on Fox. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Well, as warned, it has happened. Today, the U.S. has maxed out its credit cards, or to put it in the words of Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, the country has reached its debt limit. So extraordinary measures are now being used to avoid a default. And that means the familiar political fight over the debt ceiling, which is currently around $31.4 trillion, heats up. Democrats want to raise the debt ceiling, but Republicans want to cut spending in exchange for their votes. We're joined now by someone at the heart of this fight, Republican Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska. Welcome. Thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for being with us. So I just want to lay out the stakes here because... To be clear, the U.S. has never defaulted on its debt. So these so-called extraordinary measures will buy maybe a few months. But if a default happens, economists, of course, predict that the markets could tumble, which would hit people's retirement accounts pretty hard. And the last time there was a showdown over the debt ceiling, I mean, the U.S.'s GDP dropped 1 percent. So let me just ask you, where do negotiations stand right now? I mean, are Democrats and Republicans in the House even talking to each other? Not yet, unfortunately. And I I totally agreed that a default would be bad for our country, bad for economy. Uh, We're the world's superpower and we don't default uh, on our on our spending and our and our obligations. Uh, We also have to be wary of the fact that we have a thirty two trillion dollar deficit with a twenty trillion dollar economy. That ratio is very bad. So we need to get our spending uh, under control and, and these deficits under control. I encourage and expect our Republican leadership, to work with the Democrat leadership, to work with Joe Biden, and finding some middle ground here so we can see progress. Neither side should expect to get 100% here, but we, we got to sit down and have a handshake deal. But I'm discouraged by the fact that the president right now is refusing to negotiate, and that's not a good way to start. Well, that's what I want to ask you about, because House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, I mean, he's proposing that a spending cap be put in place in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. But as you point out, the White House is rejecting any negotiations around raising the limit. So do you personally support linking a vote to raise the debt limit to a spending cut deal? I do, but I don't think some of the proposals on our side are proposals and they're not going to you know, you got to find a middle ground with, with the other side of the aisle here. You can't uh, demand a perfection as viewed by the Republican side. And that's some folks are doing that right now. But I also don't think that it's right for the president to reject any negotiations. I mean, it's, it, this is how a bicameral separation of powers works. And the president has to meet his part way. So I encourage both sides to sit down. And But our voters on the Republican side were wanting Republicans to stop this reckless spending. So we got to have some change of direction that we can see uh, to, to vote on us. 
Well, let me ask you, as to the shape of these negotiations, some of your Republican colleagues are pushing for changes to entitlement programs like like Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid, because they are the main drivers of the debt. But these programs have traditionally been the so-called third rail in Washington. You, you just don't touch them, right? Do you think that has changed? Do you think these programs should be considered for cuts to reduce the deficit? Well, for the debt ceiling, I think we should be focused on discretionary spending right now because what you're getting to, and it's very, you're very accurate, 75% of our spending right now is the mandatory spending side versus discretionary. But I think it's going to take a lot of work, Republicans and Democrats working together to come up with a bipartisan way forward on Social Security and Medicare. You cannot do a Republican-only plan on Social Security and Medicare. You can't do a Democrat-only plan on these. It's going to have to be both sides working together to figure out how to shore up Social Security, which will go insolvent by 2035 if we do nothing. And Medicare, we're looking at in about four years, will be insolvent if we do nothing. That's unacceptable. Okay, but then Uh, what do you do? Could you clarify what you would do to shore up Social Security and or Medicare? I mean, some Democrats are saying any proposals to cut those programs are reckless. How does your party convince voters that there is actual merit in keeping this idea on the table? Tell me. Well, I don't think we keep this idea at the table for the debt limit or the debt ceiling. I think we focus on discretionary spending, Uh, maybe keeping spending within inflation as an agreement. Uh, that, that's what I would envision for the debt ceiling. But long term, the Republicans and Democrats, we should form a committee. Senator Manchin proposed this, by the way. I have felt this way for over a year. I've encouraged Leader McCarthy to consider this, to put a full-time committee together with Republicans and Democrats. Both sides get a little bit of what they want, and they have to give a little bit to, to save Social Security. It's going to take the two sides giving and take to, to save both these programs. I'm listening to the tone you're taking. It's clear that for now you do believe in the importance of bipartisanship. Are you worried that Speaker McCarthy has has just simply promised too much to members of your party who ultimately don't even want to work with Democrats? I was concerned about it two or three weeks ago. You all may realize I was one of the more vocal people criticizing the 20 for their demands. But, you know, we are where we're at. I think if we fought, if Republican, if Kevin McCarthy works with Joe Biden, where they both give and take a little bit and they meet in the middle, you'll have the majority of the Republicans will support that way forward. And I think you'll get the majority of the Democrats as well. And that's that's the key here. It can't just be one party dictating to the other party because that doesn't work. Right. And there is, of course, the political math here, the fact that Republicans have only a four seat majority in the House, the fact that the Senate and White House are in the hands of Democrats. So, you know, If Republicans cannot get everything that they want, tell us what is a reasonable expectation for your party as to how this debt limit fight resolves? Well, this is my view. I don't know if I reflect the 222 uh, other members uh, totally on this, but I think we should keep spending below inflation. And if we did that, that's a that's a win, I believe, in the in the debt ceiling debate. And that, that would be what I would advocate for the Republican Party. Well, as you're watching this fight unfold, I mean, this is the first big fight for this new Congress. How much hope do you have that this could be a Congress that's capable of coming together to solve big problems? Well, I look back to the days of Bill Clinton when we had Newt Gingrich as a speaker, Republican, Democrat president, and we actually balanced the budget. So divided government can work, but you have to do the hard work of sitting down and and you can't demand 100% for your one party. Both sides got to meet in the middle and give and take. It worked under Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich. I think, I hope we can do that again. That is Republican Congressman Don Bacon of Nebraska. Thank you very much. Thank you. 
After eight months of investigations, we still don't know who leaked the Supreme Court draft decision that overturned Roe v. Wade. Chief Justice John Roberts ordered the court's Marshal Gail Curley to oversee the inquiry, and today the court said that team was unable to identify any person or persons responsible for the unprecedented leak to Politico. NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg is here in the studio. Hey, Nina. Hey, Ari. It feels like you get to the end of a mystery and the last few pages are missing. Does the report <laughs> shed any light on what happened? Not really. Um, the, it goes through in great detail all the things that the investigative team did to ferret out who the leaker was, interviewing 97 court employees, doing extensive follow-up interviews with some people, hiring forensic experts to track who had access to the draft, who printed it out, who emailed it. All personnel who had access to the draft opinion signed sworn affidavits saying that they did not disclose the draft opinion or know anything about who did. And a few who did a few did say that they had told their spouses the outcome of the case but that was it at the end of the day as the report puts it all at this time by a preponderance of the evidence it is not possible to determine the identity of any individual who may have disclosed the document or how the draft opinion ended up with Politico. There were some interesting conclusions. Uh, it's unlikely, they said, that the public disclosure was caused by a hack of the IT systems at the court. But the pandemic and the resulting expansion of the ability to work from home, as well as gaps in the court's security policies, they said, created an environment where it was too easy to remove sensitive information from the building and the court's IT networks. And that increased the risk of both deliberate and accidental disclosures. So they interviewed 97 court employees. Does that include any of the nine justices? We don't actually know that, Ari. Surprise, surprise. The only thing we affirmatively know, and even that by inference, is that investigators did have some suspicions about certain people, but there simply wasn't sufficient evidence or even much evidence at all to justify making any sort of an accusation. And in fact, the court, the, the report went out of its way to essentially exonerate the few people whose names had been floated in social media posts, namely some law clerks for liberal justices. Hmm. Anyone watching the investigators? Yes. An independent review of the investigation was conducted by Michael Chertoff, a man with lots of appropriate credentials, former Secretary of Homeland Security, former head of the Justice Department Criminal Division, a judge on the former former judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. And he concluded that um, the court-martial undertook a thorough investigation and that he couldn't identify any additional useful investigative measures. Does that mean it's over and we're just not going to know? <laughs> well, the investigators have let the door open, but they always do that. But unless some new leads are produced, I think this is likely the last you're going to hear of this, unless, of course, the Republicans in Congress, who have threatened to do so, decide to conduct a probe. And that may be a fool's errand, but never say never. NPR Legal Affairs correspondent Nina Totenberg, thank you very much. Thank you, Ari.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up on All Things Considered in about 20 minutes, thousands of French workers went on strike and many more marched across the country to protest the president's plan to raise the retirement age from 62 to 64 years old. This is WBUR. Support for WBUR's business report comes from Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave, energy-saving solutions for your business no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. Stock slid on Wall Street today. The Dow and S&P both lost three-quarters of a percent. The Dow uh, ended at uh, 33,045, the S&P at 38,99. NASDAQ gave up nearly a full percent to close at 10,852. A Lexington-based drug company will soon have a new owner. Today, Concert Pharmaceuticals announced a $576 million sale to Sun Pharmaceuticals of India. Concert is working to develop a treatment to the hair loss condition alopecia areata. Share prices of concert pharmaceuticals rose 20 percent in trading today. In the forecast, a coastal flood advisory is in effect until noontime tomorrow. Uh, wet weather overnight tonight. Some sleet snowfall north of the turnpike could have a mix of snow and rain up by the New Hampshire border. Tomorrow, rain and snowfall moving toward Boston, leaving about two to four inches at most toward the north and west of the city, only about an inch or two right around Boston. This is WBUR. It's 521. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Eric and Wendy Schmidt through the Schmidt Family Foundation, working together to create a just world where all people have access to renewable energy, clean air and water, and healthy food. On the web at theschmidt.org. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org and from the Annie E. Casey Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. In a surprise announcement Thursday, New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern said she would be stepping down from office next month. The move shocked many across the Pacific Island nation. But as Ashley Westerman reports, some analysts say the writing was on the wall. As Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern delivered the news to her party today that she was leaving office, the 42-year-old was visibly tearful and emotional. I know what this job takes, and I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. Ardern also called for general elections to take place on October 14th and that she would not be participating. The news of her resignation sent shockwaves through the country. This is not something we were expecting today. She's caught us all off guard. That's Jeffrey Miller, a political analyst with the nonprofit Democracy Project based in Wellington. While political commentators speculated this could happen, Miller says the global political superstar made it seem like she was going to stay for the election later this year. Ardern captured the international spotlight in 2017, becoming the youngest woman in the world to run a country. Miller says she quickly rose to fame by being the exact opposite of another certain politician who entered the world stage at the same time. In many ways, she was the anti-Trump figure. 
you know, she went off to the United Nations and she decried isolationism. She really burnished an image of being an internationalist, of being a globalist. She also won praise for standing her ground in a male-dominated world of politics. Here's her responding to a journalist's question when meeting her Finnish counterpart, who is also female. My first question is, I wonder whether or not anyone ever asked Barack Obama and John Key if they met because they were of similar age. Uh, we, of course, uh, have... Uh, a higher proportion of men in politics. It, it's reality because two women meet. It's not simply because of the agenda. Ardern has tackled many crises while in office, including the COVID-19 pandemic, a volcanic eruption, and shootings at two mosques in Christchurch. On the foreign policy front, Miller says Ardern pushed New Zealand to be more pro-American and more Western, signing a free trade pact with the European Union and aligning with the West in the Ukraine-Russia war. New Zealand's relationship with China, its largest trading partner, was probably her biggest foreign policy sticking point, Miller says. Public sentiment was turning negative towards China, but she had to um, try and find a way forward. And I think her consensus approach did help with this. But at the same time, she wasn't immune to these bigger geopolitical trends. Despite her success abroad, Ardern's popularity at home has started to wane over the last year. As the pandemic slipped in priority, New Zealanders have become increasingly critical of her handling of the economy, rising inflation and mortgage rates, and her perceived uptick in crime. David Cormack is with the political consultancy group Draper Cormack. So people are doing it tough here and people tend to want to vote for change in that situation. And so I think that her and the Labour Party, they are responsible for some of the loss of popularity, but others, it's sort of they've become a victim of circumstance. In recent polling, Ardern's Labour Party is trailing the opposition National Party, led by a very conservative Christian, a rarity in New Zealand, Cormac says. An interim prime minister from Ardern's Labour Party is expected to be voted in this weekend to take over after she leaves office on February 7th. Meanwhile, analysts say this may present an opportunity for someone from her party to rise to the top ahead of the general election, which is expected to be competitive. For NPR News, I'm Ashley Westerman. The hit horror movie Megan imagines a human-like robot doll that goes rogue. Don't worry, Katie. I won't let anything harm you. Ever again. It speaks to our growing fascination and anxiety over artificial intelligence. In recent months, AI chatbots and image generators have captured everyone's attention. For our weekly All Tech Considered segment, NPR's Bobby Allen is here to help separate science fiction from something actually close to reality. Hey, Bobby. Hey, Ari. For anyone who is not familiar, Megan involves a very old film trope, right? It's the robot that turns on its creator. That's right. The film is about a toy company that makes a lifelike AI doll named Megan. It becomes the best friend of a young girl whose parents died in a car crash, and the doll is pitched as a companion for the girl, and it's programmed to comfort her. But then Megan goes haywire and starts killing people. And why, apart from the dancing, are people so into this movie? <laughs> Yeah, it's causing a stir because I think it portrays our worst nightmare about AI and robots. And 
you know, what's different this time compared to, say, robot films of 10, 15 years ago is that the idea of a humanoid robot was so much more far-fetched back then. And now it almost feels like it wouldn't be crazy if a big tech company announced a robotic doll companion like Megan, say, next year. People wouldn't be too shocked, I feel like. Oh, yeah. I watch those Boston Dynamics videos of robots doing crazy things, and it, like, gives me chills. AI has actually made so many strides in recent years. Tell us where it stands now. Yeah, so um, we're nowhere near robot sentience, but yeah, let's run through some examples like the Bostic dynamics that you just mentioned. So um, Elon Musk brought out a humanoid robot to the stage of a Tesla event that did a um, raise the roof dance. That was a little weird and creepy. Um, there's an AI tool out there that can actually listen to court arguments and then helps defendants fight traffic tickets in real time, so in front of a real judge. And yes, then there's a company, Boston Dynamics, and their videos have really made the rounds. Um, you know, it shows these robots just doing obstacles and doing backflips and coordinating with each other. I actually showed it to a friend of mine, Ari, and I said, take a look at this. And she goes, that's CGI, right? And I said, uh, no, that's not film animation. This is literally the state of robotics right now. Okay, but have there actually been any killer dolls yet? <laughs> no. <laughs> so why are we all so spooked by Megan? <laughs> Yeah, I think, you know, AI technology has been developing for decades, but it feels like it's gotten really good basically overnight because lots of different examples are hitting the mainstream at once, whether it's ChatGPT or Lenza, and we're all just very dazzled by these, right? But AI scholars are really emphasizing right now that machines cannot think and reason like a human, let alone turn on their creators. Sorry, this does sound ridiculous to say it out loud, but AI bots do not have common sense, right? They don't have the ability to think. They're programmed by engineers. They run on code to complete tasks or to look for patterns and then mimic those patterns. Okay, that's what you say now. But, but seriously, is this PSA necessary just because of a movie about a killer girl doll who wears sunglasses? I think so. I mean, <laughs> Megan has become this jumping off point for actually important and serious debates around the ethics of AI, around questions like what should the rules and laws be around privacy? Who is liable when an AI robot destroys or hurts someone? I mean, who owns the images and text that these AI bots are creating from the entire knowledge of the internet? These are complicated and thorny things. And Ari, we can thank Megan for giving these issues more oxygen right now. NPR's Bobby Allen, thanks. Thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Dataiku, a platform for everyday AI to help organizations make AI part of their daily business, designed to elevate people, teams, and companies. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. And from Keeper, a secure password manager designed to protect to a strong encryption against account takeover, ransomware, and cyber theft, used by millions globally. Learn more at KeeperNPR.com. This is NPR News. In sports, it's not yet known if Bruin center Patrice Bergeron will play in tonight's game against the Rangers in New York. The Bees captain was hit in the face by a deflected puck last night. Patriots will play in Germany next season. The NFL said today they'll either head to Munich or Frankfurt. The league is hosting five international games next season. This is 90.9 WBUR. The time is 5.30. Is there a better way to care for dementia patients? The Netherlands and France think so. They've created dementia villages where residents can live freely despite their memory loss. Because it has to do with thinking different and looking at that person in front of you and looking at what does this person need now. 
Can It Work Here in the U.S.? That's On Point tonight at 7 on 90.9 WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden is touring damaged areas of California in the wake of devastating storms that have hit the state in recent weeks, killing at least 20 people and causing destruction across 41 of the state's 58 counties. FEMA Administrator Deanne Criswell met with California's governor and other local officials today in Santa Cruz County. Criswell says President Biden has already approved additional resources for damaged areas up and down the state. That's Sacramento, Santa Cruz, Merced, San Luis Obispo, Monterey, and Santa Barbara. Those counties have been approved for both individual assistance as well as Category A debris removal and Category B emergency protective measures. And San Joaquin has been approved for individual assistance only at this time. California has been hit by nine so-called atmospheric rivers since late December, with some reports of up to 15 feet of snow in the mountains. Charges were announced today in connection with a fatal shooting on the set of an Alec Baldwin movie in New Mexico. From member station KUNM, Bryce Dix has the latest. Alec Baldwin will be formally charged at the end of the month with two counts of involuntary manslaughter in the death of Helena Hutchins on the Russ set just outside of Santa Fe in October of 2021. District Attorney Mary Carmackle Twees made the announcement Thursday, along with identical charges for the film set's armor, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed. Recently, the film's assistant director, David Hall, signed a plea agreement for the charge of negligent use of a deadly weapon. Hutchins died after a firearm loaded with lethal ammunition was discharged by Alec Baldwin during a scene rehearsal, also wounding the movie's director. State law enforcement officials claimed there was, quote, a degree of neglect after finding live ammunition on set. For NPR News, I'm Bryce Dix in Albuquerque. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Department of Public Health reports today two residents of the state had a novel strain of gonorrhea that resisted typical treatment by antibiotics. The department says the Massachusetts cases are the first in the U.S. of this particular strain of the sexually transmitted bacterial infection. Both cases were ultimately cured with an antibiotic. The strain was first detected in Asian Pacific countries and in the United Kingdom. If left untreated, gonorrhea can lead to infertility and serious health problems. The state's public health commissioner calls the discovery a serious public health concern and is urging all sexually active people to be regularly tested for sexually transmitted infections. A new report on child mental health services in Massachusetts shows challenges that existed before the pandemic have gotten worse. Here's Karen Brown. The Massachusetts Association of Health Plans highlighted several long-standing problems, a fragmented system that leads to poor coordination of care, a shrinking workforce, and not enough access to community-based urgent care when a child is in crisis. She says the state's new expansion of behavioral health care helps address these problems by creating community mental health centers, mobile crisis teams, and a helpline. But experts say there should be a robust public information campaign to let families and primary care doctors know how to find and get those services. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Karen Brown.
The shortage of children's medications in Massachusetts and across the country has prompted several members of the state's congressional delegation to call for answers. Congresswoman Diana Presley and Congresswoman Catherine Clark, along with Senator Elizabeth Warren, wrote to the CEO of Johnson & Johnson to demand information on what's being done to fix the problem. Presley tells WBR's Radio Boston the shortages are unconscionable. This is a status quo that can't stand. We're in the midst of a challenging cold and flu season. Parents with sick children visiting store after store being met with empty shelves. Johnson & Johnson has said it is ramping up production. It's all good with the Hasty Pudding. Harvard's Hasty Pudding Theatricals today announced Bob Odenkirk as its man of the year. Odenkirk plays the shady lawyer Saul Goodman on the TV series Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad. He'll receive his pudding pot in two weeks during a roast. The Hasty Pudding has yet to announce it's a woman of the year. In the forecast this evening, weather befitting the month. There's rain, sleet, and snow in the mix. Tonight should bring mainly rain, except for snow along the border of New Hampshire. Could have three to six inches collecting on the border by daybreak tomorrow. And then tomorrow morning, some rain and snow closer to Boston, moving closer to the south shore by midday. In the Boston area, maybe an inch or two collecting by the end of the day, two to four north and west of the city, only an inch or less on the south shore. 37 degrees now in the Boston area. The time is 5. 36. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Mattress Firm, dedicated to providing personalized service with the goal of helping people sleep well so they can live well. Customers can shop their range of products in store or online at mattressfirm.com. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. President Biden is touring California's storm-damaged Central Coast today. The region is trying to recover from a series of devastating Pacific storms that battered the state for nearly three weeks. He's been meeting with first responders just south of the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as state officials like Governor Gavin Newsom. Rachel Myro of member station KQED is in San Jose and joins us now. Hi, Rachel. Hi there. Hi. So I saw that the White House has already approved an emergency declaration for California. The Biden administration announced even more aid last night. Can you just talk about like what all of that means in practical terms, like why it's important? Well, in a word, money. Federal emergency aid is going to be critical to help much of the state pay for the response to these storms, past, present and future. And it has been a heck of a month here, Elsa. In just 21 days, the weather killed at least 20 people, swamped roads, triggered landslides, toppled trees, cut power to tens of thousands of people at a time. Today, Marine One, the president's helicopter, is taking him around parts of the Central Coast to give him a chance to see the scale of the devastation. And I know that you've been reporting from some of the areas Biden is visiting, right? Yep. I spent some time in Capitola Village, the seaside town near Santa Cruz, that Biden just got a chance to take a look at. A number of his locals, a number of locals told me they hadn't seen weather this devastating since 1982. I also talked with small business owners hit hard by extended power outages. For example, if you run a restaurant, all that food has to go. Yeah. Well, How about the stuff that the president is seeing? Can you describe some of the sorts of things that he's been witnessing today? 
beaches covered with debris still, battered and broken piers and bridges, stretches of highway and train tracks closed because of mudslides, downed trees and massive sinkholes, hundreds of homes damaged or destroyed. But there are so many examples, too, else of local community members helping each other out from volunteering to stuff sandbags to rescuing elderly neighbors to clean up. You know, 40 out of 58 counties in California have been affected by this series of storms. Absolutely. Well, let me ask you this, Rachel. As Californians, you and I have both hearing, we keep hearing these storms described as extreme, but do you think that's kind of an overstatement or has it just been like, you know, a really, really wet winter? I think this storm series was a whopping nine atmospheric rivers, one after the other. One of our local papers, Elsa, the Mercury News, pointed out that Abraham Lincoln was president the last time it was this wet. Mm -hmm. For something comparable, well, much worse, really, you have to go back to the Great Flood of 1862. That turned the Central Valley into a massive lake and killed an estimated 4,000 people. So this winter's storm's not quite as bad as that. Not quite as bad. No, that's correct. So do we have any idea of what the total bill will be for the recovery? Well, early days yet. Here's Administrator Deanne Criswell with the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, who's been traveling with the president, speaking earlier today on Air Force One. Yeah, we're starting to get some numbers in, but honestly, because this has been so ongoing and there's so many parts of the state that they haven't actually been able to access yet because there's still significant road closures across the state, um, several hundred million um, as initial estimates, but I expect that number to go up. All right, we've been talking to Rachel Myro of member station KQED reporting from San Jose. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you. More than a million people took to the streets of French cities today to protest against President Emmanuel Macron's plans to raise the country's retirement age. As NPR's Eleanor Beardsley reports from Paris, the large turnout suggests trouble ahead for the French government. Place de la République, where the march kicked off in Paris, was completely packed with a party-like atmosphere. Trucks blared music from loudspeakers, giant balloons floated overhead. Protesters waved placards with slogans like, not one more year, one more month, or one more day. Of work, that is. I don't want to die at at my job. That's 47-year-old Paris metro worker Arnaud Roux expressing a common sentiment. The major sticking point of this reform is it raises the minimum retirement age from 62 to 64. Engineer Jean-Marc Nicolas tries to explain to an American why this is unacceptable. In the United States, you, you can retire before if you have uh, enough money. But here in France, it's uh, only one system. And, and so when, when we say it's 64, it's really 64 for everybody, even for those who have begun very, uh, very young. In its plan, the government makes some concessions to those who begin working early. Anyone who started at age 16 can retire at 58. But the plan gets rid of outdated and costly special retirement systems for certain categories like train workers who could retire as early as 52. When laying the plan out earlier this month to Parliament, Prime Minister Elizabeth Byrne said there would also be special measures to help those with physically difficult jobs whose health had suffered from things like night work and heavy lifting. Byrne called the reform fair. 
But 61-year-old construction worker Bashir Benamara disagrees. I meet him on a work site in Paris. Construction is not considered a difficult career, though his union has been pushing to change that classification. He says making it to 64 is hard. Mais on peut pas. Je vous dis, à 60 ans, on arrive pas. Moi, j'ai des camarades qui sont partis à 57 ans. Malheureusement, ils sont partis. We can't do it. At 60, we can barely hold out anymore. I have colleagues who had to leave at 57. Others have died from sickness and fatigue soon after retiring. But it's not just those with difficult jobs who are against raising the minimum age. Humanity's progress is so we can work less, not more, many people told me. Recent polls show four out of five French are against the reform. One of them is comedian Mathieu Ducré. I meet him in the Paris metro this week. Even though these strikes disrupt train service and inconvenience him, he says they're for a good cause. We've just uh, passed through like the pandemic and the war. So I think everyone is fed up. What's the meaning of life if, if you have to work on your life? To, 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 to what? Reforming the French pension system was a campaign promise of Macron's. He was forced to abandon it during his first term because of the pandemic. It doesn't appear the task will be any easier now. The left and the far right are against it, and he's lost his supermajority in parliament, so any contentious measure will be difficult to get through. Macron was in Spain today where he spoke about the reform. This reform is democratic and fair, he said. With people living longer, we have to enact it to save our system. We are open to dialogue, but we will proceed with determination. Unions are determined to stop Macron, even if they have to continue striking and paralyze the country to do so. Today's massive turnout was a signal that the French people, for now, support them. Eleanor Beardsley, NPR News, Paris. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Actor Alec Baldwin faces criminal charges in the shooting death of cinematographer Helena Hutchins on the set of the movie Rust. Baldwin was the film's lead actor and a producer. He was holding the prop gun that went off during a rehearsal. The bullet killed Hutchins and wounded the director, and the production's armorer was also charged today. NPR's Mondelite Del Barco has been following the story since last year when all of this happened and joins us in studio now. Hey, Mondelite. Hey. So can you just tell us more about these charges and what they could actually mean for both Alec Baldwin and the armorer? Sure. Well, Alec Baldwin and the set's armorer, Hannah Gutierrez-Reed, each faced two counts of involuntary manslaughter. Those are both fourth-degree uh, fourth felonies. <laughs> the first one is punishable by up to 18 months in jail and a $5,000 fine. And the second, because a firearm element was added, carries a mandatory five-year sentence. <laughs> yeah, so authorities investigated the shooting, trying to figure out who's responsible for what happened during a rehearsal of a scene on a 
Ranch outside of Santa Fe. And in a statement today, the the New Mexico District Attorney's Office said the evidence showed uh, a, a pattern of criminal disregard for safety on the film set. By the end of this month, the charges will be officially filed. Now, Elsa, there was another person charged with negligent use of a deadly weapon. That was Assistant Director David Halls. He signed a plea deal, and he faces a suspended sentence and six months of probation. The special prosecutor in the case said that in a statement that if Halls, Gutierrez-Reed, or Baldwin had done their job, Helena Hutchins would be alive today. Well, what are Baldwin and the others saying so far about these charges? Well, Baldwin's attorneys vowed to fight the charges, which they call a terrible miscarriage of justice. They said in a statement, quote, Mr. Baldwin had no reason to believe there was a live bullet in the gun or, or anywhere on the movie set. He relied on the professionals which with, with whom he worked, who was assured him the gun did not have live rounds. Now, uh, Baldwin has maintained he was not criminally responsible. He even went on ABC TV to recount how he'd been rehearsing with Hutchins behind the camera. Now, in this scene, I'm going to cock the gun. And I said, do you want to see that? And she said, yes. So I take the gun and I start to cock the gun. I'm not going to pull the trigger. I, I said, do you see that? She goes, well, just cheat it down and tilt it down a little bit like that. And I cock the gun. I go, can you see that? Can you see that? Can you see that? And she says, and then I let go of the hammer of the gun and the gun goes off. Now, as yeah. for Gutierrez-Reed, yeah. As for Gutierrez-Reed, her attorney sent a statement today that said she did not commit involuntary manslaughter and that she will be exonerated by a jury. He said, quote, these charges are the result of a very flawed investigation and an inaccurate understanding of the full facts. Hmm. Well, what about Helena Hutchins and her family? Like, what are they saying about these charges? Well, the Hutchins say they support the charges and will fully cooperate with the prosecution. In a statement, they said it is, quote, uh, it is a Comfort to the family that in New Mexico, no one is above the law. Um, now, Elsa, it was just a year and a half ago that Baldwin had reached a settlement with Hutchins' husband, Matthew. At the time, he said he dropped the wrongful death lawsuit he filed against Baldwin and the other producers with Rust Productions. And as part of that agreement, the film, the filming of Rust was to resume this month in January with Hutchins' widow serving as an executive producer. But now we'll just have to see if Rust ever gets made. That was NPR's Mundalit Del Barco. Thank you, Mundalit. Thank you, Elsa. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Still to come, remembering David Crosby, an icon of American rock and co-founder of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. Join Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering on Monday, January 30th at City Space for a conversation and food tasting with celebrity chef Tiffany Faison. Get tickets at WBUR.org slash events. There's a coastal flood advisory in effect until noontime tomorrow. The area is most affected. Parts of Essex, Norfolk, Plymouth, and Suffolk counties look out for flooding in low-lying areas, including parks and roadways, especially around high tide. The wet weather is in for quite a while. Rain and some sleet around the region now pretty messy out there. Snowfall north of the Turnpike. Tonight should bring rain mixed with some snow up at the New Hampshire border. Should amount to about three to six inches there. Then tomorrow, rain and snowfall moving toward Boston, leaving two inches at most, two to four inches north and west of the city. It's 549.
We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. A lot of us talk to our cars when we're driving. In my case, it's mostly me saying, come on, come on, come on, please start. If your car's like that, then maybe it's time for a new conversation. Hey, I'm Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. Let's talk about donating your car, your old or unwanted car, whatever it is. It can be turned into Morning Edition, Wait, Wait, or Snap Judgment. Trust me, your car will understand. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Legendary musician David Crosby has died. He was the founding member of The Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He influenced scores of singer-songwriters. Crosby helped shape rock music with powerful harmonies and a sound that blended elements of folk, pop, country, and psychedelia. The two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee was 81 years old. It was just last year that Crosby said he was done performing live, saying he was too old to do it anymore, and that he didn't have the stamina or the strength. Crosby's passing came after a long illness. NPR's Eric Westervelt has this appreciation. In the late 1960s and early 70s rock era dominated by either heavy electric guitar gods or meandering psychedelia, David Crosby and his friends took a very different path. I am yours, you are mine, you are what you are. Crosby, Stills, and Nash at times would soar with electric jams, but their foundation was a unique California sound built on harmonies, acoustic guitars, and a dose of self-awareness often missing in rock lyrics. Exactly where in L.A.'s Laurel Canyon Crosby, Stills, and Nash first sang together is still debated, lost in a smoky haze. But Crosby told me in a 2019 interview that night, they all realized they had something special. Crosby, Stills, and Nash knew right away. As soon as we sang one of Stephen's songs, you know, he's a great songwriter. As soon as Nash put in the top part, we said, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's what I'll be doing for a while. Crosby, Stills, and Nash's 1969 self-titled debut album was a huge critical and commercial success. America's first rock supergroup was born. The group grew out of three successful bands that were imploding. Graham Nash wanted out of the pop rock group The Hollies, Stephen Stills and Neil Young had departed the Buffalo Springfield, and Crosby had just been kicked out of the birds. Crosby, Stills and Nash's second live show ever was in front of nearly half a million people at Woodstock. They soon toured the U.S. to sold-out shows. Speak your mind. The band regularly spoke and sang out against the Vietnam War, political repression, and other issues. In the summer of 1969, the group added friend Neil Young, and in 1970, the newly expanded CSNNY released the album Deja Vu, an unbridled masterpiece. Crosby wrote and sang lead vocals on the title track. Me. 
Crosby's career started in Los Angeles, where he was born. His first big band was The Birds. The group found success covering folk classics and later peaked with the psychedelic-infused hit Eight Miles High. Crosby's offstage excesses and antics soon made him into something of a larger-than-life folk hero. But the Crosby myth would run hard into the reality that he'd become incredibly difficult to deal with and a drug addict. The fights, creative and personal, within Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young are legendary. Crosby had started using heroin after a girlfriend was killed in a car crash. He would add copious amounts of cocaine, often freebasing the drug, and began a long, slow spiral. Crosby told me famous friends, including Nash and Jackson Brown, attempted interventions. That didn't work either. There's a certain moment that you have when you know you just simply can't go on. You can't go any further down that road. In the meetings, they tell you it's a moment of clarity. Uh, whatever you want to call it, there is a moment. Crosby's moment came with the help of a Texas prison. Drug-addled, paranoid, and facing multiple weapons and drug violations, Crosby hit out on his sailboat in South Florida before turning himself into the West Palm Beach FBI office. He was later sentenced to five years on drugs and weapons charges, but did less than a year. He kicked heroin during five months behind bars in Texas. Going to prison worked. I don't recommend it. It's a hard, hard, hard way to kick. They laughed at me and thought I was funny. Hey, rock star, how are you now? But even after he got off hard drugs, those that knew him say there was still a core conflict. Crosby's creative brilliance, humor, and spark often mixed with equal doses of arrogance, egomania, and hubris that alienated some of those closest to him. All the main guys that I made music with won't even talk to me. All of them. That's Crosby and writer and filmmaker Cameron Crowe's documentary, Remember My Name. When it came out, I asked Crosby about how once good friends who made great music together could end up so estranged. So it was a fully competitive band, hmm. and we were competing all the time, the whole time. Uh, and we were horrible to each other many, many times, all of us. In spite of that, we made some incredible music. And I don't have any bad feelings in my heart about any of those guys. But I really can't stand around waiting to have a therapy session. In the five minutes I got, I got to play a song. Crosby's final years were filled with lots of new songs, despite health setbacks. Crosby recorded multiple solo albums and toured with groups of younger musicians, including the Lighthouse Band, here performing for NPR's Tiny Desk Concert Series. When the documentary about Crosby came out, he told me he's at peace with who he'd become, despite the burned bridges and lost friends. I've hurt a lot of people, he said, adding, I've helped a lot more. You know, if you used to be a junkie, you spent all your time thinking that how awful you were. So the feeling of being able to look at myself now and be proud of myself, oh boy, that's a big deal. Eric Westervelt, NPR News. If I had ever been it before, I would probably know just what to do. Time 
All Things Considered is a production of NPR News, which is solely responsible for its content. Like a story you heard on this or another NPR program? Share it with a friend at npr.org. While there, you can also hear stories you missed. Enjoy expanded content or connect to your favorite member station, wherever you are. Get the NPR app for your mobile device. You can also lean back and enjoy npr.org, optimized for the iPad. This is NPR. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Orion with Women Talking, screenplay by and directed by Sarah Pauly, starring Rooney Mara, Claire Foy, Jesse Buckley, Judith Ivey, with Ben Wishaw and Frances McDormand, now only in theaters. And from Progressive Insurance with its Name Your Price tool, a way to see coverage options based on a driver's budget. Learn more at Progressive.com or 1-800-PROGRESSIVE. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And from Fisher Investments, Fisher Investments' team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and Social Security. FisherInvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. Checking sports, not yet known if Bruins center Patrice Bergeron will play in tonight's game against the Rangers in New York. The Bees captain was hit in the face by a deflected puck last night. Bergeron was x-rayed following the game. No public results yet. And the Patriots will play in Germany next season. The NFL said today they'll either head to Munich or to Frankfurt. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 559. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Whitehead Institute. Join director Ruth Lehman on January 26th in conversation with science writer Carl Zimmer. wi.mit.edu slash events. I'm healthcare reporter Martha Biebinger, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. With refugee resettlement organizations stretched thin, the U.S. is trying a different approach. A private sponsorship program called Welcome Corps will let groups of average Americans sponsor refugees. Our story is coming up. Today is Thursday, January 19th, and this is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, NPR has obtained never-before-published tapes recorded by prison staff during four executions in Virginia. These types of records are really key to public oversight and, you know, holding public bodies and, you know, government actors accountable. Also, eggs are expensive. The price jumped to almost 60% over the last year. Consumers are feeling the pinch. We need more eggs. So my daughter's in-laws are coming down from Minnesota and they're bringing three dozen eggs from the farm. What's behind the high price? Coming up, it's 6.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. 
Rock music legend David Crosby has died, a founding member of the Birds and Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young. He died surrounded by members of his family after what was reported today to be a long illness. He was 81 years old. NPR's Eric Westervelt reports Crosby influenced scores of singer-songwriters and helped shape rock's voice in the 60s and 70s. The two-time Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inductee is best known for his work with Crosby, Stills, and Nash, a group that sometimes included Neil Young. He told NPR the first time the trio sang together, they all realized they had something special. As soon as we sang one of Stephen's songs, as soon as Nash put in the top part, we said, oh, yeah, okay, that's, that's what I'll be doing for a while. Crosby battled heroin and cocaine addiction before finally kicking the drugs in 1986 while serving time in a Texas prison. Despite health problems, Crosby in recent years continued to make new music and tour with groups of younger musicians. Eric Westervelt, NPR News. President Biden is in California today surveying some of the damage from a recent raft of storms that have left at least 20 people dead and cost potentially as much as a billion dollars in damages. President accompanied by the head of the Federal Emergency Management Agency and California Governor Gavin Newsom, Biden last week approved a major disaster declaration for the state freeing up additional resources to help. The U.S. Supreme Court today released a report saying it has been unable to identify any person responsible for last spring's unprecedented leak of the draft decision overturning Roe v. Wade. NPR's Nina Totenberg reports the report comes after an eight-month probe conducted by an internal court investigative team. The report goes through in great detail all the things that the investigative team did to ferret out who the leaker was. A total of 97 court employees were interviewed, some multiple times. Forensic experts were hired to track who had access to the draft, who printed it out, who emailed it. All personnel who had access to the draft signed sworn affidavits denying any role in the leak or knowing who did. But at the end of the day, as the report puts it, quote, at this time, by a preponderance of the evidence standard, it is not possible to determine the identity of any individual who may have disclosed the document or how the draft opinion ended up with Politico. Nina Totenberg, NPR News, Washington. With the government at least on paper bumping up against its current nearly $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, the Treasury Department announced today it's begun taking so-called extraordinary measures in terms of moving money around. That's to continue making payments on existing debt. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen in a letter to congressional leaders called on them to act quickly to raise the debt ceiling, where some GOP lawmakers have already indicated they plan to use the fight over raising the ceiling to push for government spending cuts. The Dow fell 252 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The head of the Federal Reserve Bank of Boston is predicting more interest rate hikes in the near future. President Susan Collins told a conference today she thinks the Fed will raise rates another three quarters to one percent to combat inflation. Recent economic data have shown inflation is slowing nationally, but still higher than the Federal Reserve's target. Collins says she thinks the Feds will eventually raise rates to just above five percent and then hold them there for a while. The Harvard Kennedy School of Government has reversed course and awarded a fellowship to Kenneth Roth. He's the former head of the organization Human Rights Watch. Kennedy School Dean Douglas Elmendorf withdrew the fellowship in August. Roth says he believes he was denied because he's criticized Israel's human rights violations. Roth says he will take part in the fellowship but feels uneasy about the meaning of the reversal. Is this a broad commitment? to academic freedom, regardless of who criticizes Israel? Or is it 
simply in my case, because I have a high profile. And we don't know the answer to that. Almondor says today he believes he made an error by failing to appoint Roth last summer. Massachusetts Nurses Association is leading a new legislative effort to establish limits on the number of patients a nurse needs to care for during a shift. The union says the pandemic worsened the workload for caregivers and has contributed to a growing crisis. The nurses went to pa- want to pass a new law to compel the Department of Public Health to establish regulations with specific patient limits. The Massachusetts Health and Hospital Association says any new approach will require unity and flexibility among care workers to meet the needs of patients. The city of Boston's moving forward with a plan to permanently close part of Dartmouth Street to traffic, the areas between the Public Library and Copley Square. The Boston Planning and Development Authority says a 10-day test of the idea last year found minimal impact on traffic. The authority found the added foot traffic and bike access improved community life by allowing activities such as yoga classes and block parties. The authority voted earlier this evening to hire a consultant to design the project. Rain has arrived in the Boston area. It's mixing with sleet and snowflakes in areas north and northwest of the city, including in Salem, Lowell, and Lemonster. In this messy weather, there's a traffic alert. The ramp from 495 north to Route 9 west in South Road is closed for a tractor-trailer rollover. There are slowdowns on both roads right around that crash. Once again, that's on the ramp from 495 north to Route 9 west in Southborough. More wet and wintry weather coming up. WBR meteorologist Danielle Noyce has the forecast through tomorrow. A bit of everything out there, though mostly rain through overnight tonight, except in far northern Massachusetts into southern New Hampshire, where areas of snow will accumulate three to six inches by early tomorrow morning. Otherwise, rain changes to snow in Boston late tomorrow morning and on the south shore tomorrow midday. I anticipate an inch or two of accumulation in the city, two to four inches north and west, a coating to an inch south of town and those higher totals from the Merrimack Valley, Route 2 quarter into southern New Hampshire. The snow will end tomorrow evening and then temperatures drop into the 20s with some icy spots, areas of minor coastal flooding during the high tide tomorrow morning. Pretty sloppy driving out there right now. 37 degrees in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. Protesters in Peru are pressuring the country's new president to step down. Today, thousands of demonstrators flooded into the capital city of Lima. Protests and clashes with security forces have killed more than 50 people since Peru's former president tried to dissolve Congress and rule by decree. Those deaths have mainly impacted people in Peru's southern countryside. Enraged residents from those rural cities brought their demands to the capital today, and NPR's Kerry Khan is in Lima. Hi, Kerry. Hi, Ari. Describe the situation right now in the capital city. I'm here near a well-known park. It's called Kennedy Park in Lima near downtown, and anti-government marchers have been streaming into the city and here for days. One group I was with came from the Andean Highland city of Ayacucho. Out of the 53 deaths of the past weeks, at least 10 were from Ayacucho. This is the worst violence, Ari, that Peru has seen, you know, due to political unrest in decades, and authorities today have brought in 12,000 officers to Lima and barricades are up all around key government buildings. These protests have been going on for more than a month. Mm -hmm. Remind us how it all started. 
Well, back in December, um, there, when the former president tried to dissolve Congress um, and was impeached and arrested, the demands then were to release him. He was this political newcomer from the rural South. His support is there, and that's where the protests began. But within weeks, the death toll started growing. Nearly all civilians by police forces, according to human rights advocates, and anger has just swelled as that death toll has increased. So what are protesters demanding now? Well, their demands have changed a little bit. They blame the current president, Dina Boluarte, for the deaths. They want her out, and they want new elections this year. But protesters from the South brought their demands directly to Lima. They're saying to the elite here, the urban well-do, they say ignore their plight. Here's Mirta Vasquez. She was prime minister under Castillo, but resigned after decrying corruption in his ranks. And she says, look, this huge gap between the urban elites and poor indigenous in the South must be addressed. She says these are historic demands. We want justice, equality. They must stop treating us like we don't exist, we don't matter, and above all, the killings must stop. You're based in Brazil, although we're speaking to you right now in Peru. You were just reporting on the storming of government buildings by supporters of the former far-right president there in the city of Brasilia. Now you're covering this unrest in Peru. Is democracy having a tough time in the region right now? Definitely, there there are challenges in both these countries. Brazil is holding up as authorities, you know, search for the perpetrators of those attacks, and they're they're hold, they're conducting widespread investigations. Peru is much more tenuous. Annual, analysts tell me its political structure is very weak. Look, Ari, the current president doesn't even have a party. A political scientist, Alberto Vergara, here at the Pacific University, says democracy in Peru muddles on despite its politicians. Because it's the mediocrity of politicians what assures that no one is able to build an authoritarian regime. But, but he did warn, and he's, he's very concerned. He thinks that the violence can get much worse here in Peru. So it doesn't look like an end is in sight, at least in the near term. No, it does not. NPR's Kerry Kahn covering those protests in Lima. Thank you for your reporting. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ari. Across the country, the high price of eggs has people scrambling. Get it? Sorry, sorry, sorry. Seriously, though, in December, the cost of eggs was up 60 percent over the previous year, according to the Consumer Price Index. Kendall Crawford of Harvest Public Media explains what's behind the increase. When you walk through the doors of the Sugar Shack Bakery in Sioux City, Iowa, the smell hits you right away. And people line up to order from the assortment of cakes and cookies on the shelves. All right, two caramels uh, and two To make each sweet-smelling treat, it takes a whopping 300 eggs every two to three days. Lately, that's meant a much higher bill for Claudia Hessa, the bakery's owner. She says she's been spending more than double on them, and she can't double or triple sales to make up for it. You just can't. You wouldn't, you'd be out of business. So it's like, yeah, what do you do? The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics says the average cost for grade-A large carton of eggs last month was $4.25. In California, the average retail price is now around $7. And in the Midwest, January wholesale prices shot above $5, according to the USDA. 
Pat Westhoff is director of the Food and Agricultural Policy Research Institute at the University of Missouri. He says egg prices are typically more volatile than other food commodities. It takes a pretty big increase in price to convince people not to buy quite as many eggs. So uh, a relatively modest percentage decline in production has resulted in a very large percentage increase in prices. And that shrinking supply is the result of a deadly bird flu, says analyst Maro Ibaburu of the Egg Industry Center. We lost 44 million laying hens last year because of avian influenza. So... That creates a reduction on the on the number of eggs that can be produced. And 2022 marked one of the virus's deadliest outbreaks, which helped keep the prices high. New at noon, a disaster proclamation is issued for a county in northwest Iowa over the bird flu. The proclamation from Governor Kim Reynolds... When the virus is detected in one bird, federal law requires that all remaining birds be culled to keep the highly pathogenic virus from spreading. Last March, one of the country's biggest egg producers, Rembrandt Enterprises, had to cull a flock of more than 5 million hens. And major bird losses continued throughout September, right before winter, when eggs hit peak demand. At the Hy-Vee grocery store in Sioux City, the price of eggs made Lisa Gonzoli decide not to buy any. No, it's just ridiculous. She says when she started having to pay more than $5 for a dozen, she considered excluding them from her grocery list entirely. But we're having a baby shower this weekend and we need more eggs. So my daughter's in-laws are coming down from Minnesota and they're bringing three dozen eggs from the farm. That way she can save and still bake for her guests. But even if you don't have an in like Gonzoli, relief may be coming soon. The USDA is forecasting better days, a 30% drop from some of the highest prices. So if bird flu doesn't cause another disruption, buyers could be shelling out a little less next season. For NPR News, I'm Kendall Crawford in Sioux City. The U.N. called it a sobering milestone last year. For the first time on record, the number of people forcibly displaced from their homes around the world reached 100 million. Now the State Department is trying to make it easier for everyday Americans to help some of those refugees resettle in the U.S., Today, it announced a new private sponsorship program, as NPR's Joel Rose reports. This new pilot program is called the Welcome Corps, and the State Department is calling it the boldest innovation in refugee resettlement in four decades. The Welcome Corps invites Americans to do what we do best, welcoming newcomers, being good guides, neighbors, and friends. At a press briefing today, Assistant Secretary of State Julieta Noyes explained how the program will work. Groups of ordinary U.S. citizens and permanent residents can volunteer to sponsor refugees from around the world. These could be faith-based groups, colleges or universities, veterans associations, or just a group of friends, as long as they can raise enough money, pass a background check, and commit to doing the work. It's a lot of work involved in, in sponsoring a refugee, finding schools, helping them find affordable housing, getting their kids signed up for school, helping them find jobs, showing them where the pharmacy is, what bus to take. Until now, the State Department has relied primarily on professional resettlement organizations to do this work. But those groups have been struggling to rebuild after deep cuts to the number of refugees the U.S. admitted under former President Trump. The Welcome Corps will start small, with a goal of resettling 5,000 refugees in the first year. Still, advocates say this new private sponsorship model could mark a significant shift in how the U.S. refugee system works. 
Sasha Chanoff is with Refuge Point, a nonprofit that has advised the State Department on this new program. It broadens the opportunities for Americans to welcome refugees here in a new way. More people, more organizations, more geographies and locations that are able to welcome refugees. The Welcome Corps is modeled on earlier efforts to resettle Afghans and Ukrainians through private sponsorship. Last year, we talked to one Afghan family who fled the fall of Kabul and resettled in Alabama, where they were welcomed by a group of sponsors, including Ben Johnson, an Army veteran who served in Afghanistan. I am fully aware that a lot of people I served with were, the Afghans I served with, were killed. So when we got the chance to repay this kind of personal debt, I had to say yes. That is how the Johnsons came to meet Sharifa Hafuri, her husband and their six kids. He had worked as a security guard at the U.S. Embassy in Kabul. Hafuri says they had no relatives in the U.S. and no friends. But that changed pretty quickly once they arrived in Huntsville. Their sponsors helped them find a house and learn how to drive. I like driving. (laughs) What are you going to do when you can drive? Where are you going to go? I will go to work at uh, uh, university. I want to go to university also. I like to learn a lot. That was back in April. Now Sharifa and her husband both have their driver's licenses and jobs. And they become close friends with Ben and his wife, Julie Johnson. The Johnsons say the experience has been, quote, life-changing, not only for the Hoferies, but for their own family, too. Joel Rose, NPR News. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up on Marketplace at 6.30. Harvard Medical School announced this week it's dropped out of the U.S. News and Report School rankings. We'll hear about the impact of the announcement and why Harvard is making the move now. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.com. Stock slid on Wall Street today. The Dow and S&P both lost three-quarters of a percent. That brought the Dow to a close of 33,045, the S&P to 3899. The Nasdaq gave up nearly a full percent to close at 10,852. A Lexington-based drug company will soon have a new owner. Today, Concert Pharmaceuticals announced a $576 million sale to Sun Pharmaceuticals in India. Concert is working to develop a treatment to hair loss condition, alopecia areata. Share prices of Concert Pharmaceuticals rose 20% in trading today. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Eversource, a proud sponsor of MassSave. Energy-saving solutions for your business, no matter the size. Information about tools to reduce your carbon footprint, lessen environmental impact, and custom recommendations for reaching your sustainability goals at Eversource.com. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive our whole program. Consider donating it. And thanks. Just go to WBUR.org. 
This note in traffic, the ramp from 495 northbound to Route 9 west in Southboro is closed for a tractor-trailer rollover. There are slowdowns on both roads around the crash. Once again, that's Route 9 west in Southboro at 495 northbound. Rain, sleet, and snow in the mix overnight tonight. Temperatures right around the 30-degree mark could have 3 to 6 inches along the New Hampshire border, less toward Boston and south of the city. This is WBUR. WBUR supporters include Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHolleran.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. When legal executions are carried out in the U.S., the few members of the public who are allowed to attend are forbidden to tape or photograph what they witness. But NPR investigative reporter Kiara Eisner obtained audio that was taped behind the scenes during four executions from the point of view of prison staff. Just a warning, we're going to play some of that audio from those executions, which some listeners might find disturbing. 35 years ago in Virginia, just minutes before a man was scheduled to die by electrocution, employees at the prison started taping what they were seeing. What you're about to hear next are moments drawn from that tape. Have you got the recorder on? Yes, it's on go. This is the first time any part of that audio has been played for the public. The inmate is being removed from the cell, being led to the chamber. The inmate is now strapped into the chair. The first charge has been applied. These kinds of recordings are typically closely guarded by the government. I didn't get these from the prison, though. I found them in the Library of Virginia. But even there, the records had been kept hidden for more than a decade. Roger Christman is one of the state archivists. So we have erroneously restricted them. So the tapes were restricted until I asked for them? Essentially, yes. We were following the 50-year guideline that the Department of Corrections had put on the earlier execution files we had here. There's a law in Virginia that says the Department of Corrections can restrict files about executions for 50 years after the prisoner dies. The library originally thought that law applied to them, too. After I argued that law shouldn't apply, the archivists gave me the tapes. But the story of how the audio arrived at the library in the first place really starts in the house of an 82-year-old man named R.M. Oliver. As I recall, he contacted us and said he had some Department of Corrections material and could we come and take a look at it? Interesting. So y'all went to his house to pick up the files? We went to his house and when we got there, he brought out this nice brown suitcase essentially and said, this is what I have to donate. Oliver said he felt the tapes were important when he donated them in 2006. And he was right. Not only do they explain step-by-step how executions were carried out in Virginia, they provide a rare glimpse into the relationships between the prisoners and the workers who were executing them. Alton Way's last words were captured on this tape just minutes before he was executed. I would like to express my respect to be taken here as a murder. Did you bend that? I'm trying to get it. I would like to express that what is about to take place here is a murder and something about he doesn't hold that against anyone and he loves everyone. What Way actually said was that he forgave everyone who was involved with his murder. 
key place in proper position, warden nod, the execution is taking place. How had records this important ended up outside prison walls in somebody's briefcase? Roger said he had asked that question to the donor, R.M. Oliver. He said he used to work at the Department of Corrections. Oliver had been the agency's director at one time, but he had left that position more than a decade before any of the four executions took place. Since Oliver passed away years ago, I visited his son, Stephen. It was pouring outside as we ran for cover into his house in Richmond. I'm sorry the house is a mess. Oh, no, we're sorry we're a little late. We got you all set up in the uh, kitchen. I showed the original briefcase to Stephen. The archivist, Roger, had kept the bag that had carried the tapes all this time in his office and had given me permission to take it from the library. Does this look like something your dad would have? I don't even remember seeing that briefcase. He may have had it hidden in a closet somewhere. Dad kept it uh, a secret from us. There were certainly reasons people may have wanted to keep the tape secret. One of them indicated that staff were unprepared to handle one of the most important calls that can be made during an execution. Ms. Ranji, yes. we need get 306 clear. The governor's office is calling. The governor is the only person with the power to save the prisoner's life, even at that final moment. Debbie, they're strapping him in the chair. Hold on a minute. For more than two minutes, they struggled to connect the phone call from the governor as the prisoner sat strapped to the electric chair, just waiting. Hang that one, hang it up. Tell him we'll call him back. Boggs ended up being executed. The governor hadn't wanted to save his life. Had he felt differently though, Virginia could have come close to executing a man the governor had pardoned. But the last tape in the briefcase revealed an even more serious oversight. The state may have tried to cover up key parts of the execution of a black man named Wilbert Lee Evans. The team is continuing to strap Evans into the chair. It's now 11 o'clock. What happened next on the tape sounds very different from what reporters who witnessed the execution said they observed. The Richmond Times-Dispatch reported that after the first volt of electricity hit Evans, he started bleeding from his face. It's 11.04, the first surge of electricity has been administered. A reporter from the Alexandria Journal said it was then that the blood started bubbling down his belly and onto his shirt. But there's no mention of any of that on the recording. 11.05, second surge of electricity has been administered. Even after that, she still didn't say anything. If the local journalists hadn't reported what happened, the prison's official tape would have made it seem like Evans's face hadn't bled at all. And it's 11.09, the inmate has expired. I asked the Department of Corrections whether they had any more execution tapes, and they said that they did. They had seven. But they refused to provide any of those. They also declined an interview to talk to me about why. Ian Kalish is an attorney who teaches at the University of Virginia's law school. I think that these types of records are really key to facilitating public oversight and, you know, holding public bodies and, you know, government actors accountable. Virginia executed more people in its history than any other state in America before it abolished the death penalty in 2021. Kalish believes the public deserves to know what happened in its death chamber. It's very concerning to me that, you know, this type of information is being withheld. Today, most executions across the U.S. are carried out by lethal injection. 
But execution workers still made mistakes during more than a third of the ones that were attempted last year. Blair Andres leads the U.S. death penalty casework for a nonprofit called Reprieve that advocates against lethal injection. States have increasingly resorted to secrecy in the execution process. Last year, Alabama took more than three hours to execute Joe Nathan James Jr. The staff said nothing out of the ordinary happened. But Reprieve helped arrange an autopsy of his body. It showed multiple bruises and puncture wounds. I reached out to the Alabama Department of Corrections for comment on the autopsy results, and they didn't reply. Blair says the state's lack of transparency is suspicious. If the state is doing everything correctly, then they shouldn't have anything to hide. So it, it does raise the question, what is the state trying to cover up? That's also a question in Virginia. As long as the Department of Corrections refuses to release the rest of the execution tapes, the public won't know the answer. Kiara Eisner, NPR News, Richmond. This is NPR News. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by the Handel and Haydn Society. Feel the adrenaline-packed power of Beethoven's Heroic Symphony tomorrow and Sunday at Symphony Hall. Tickets at handelandhaydn.org.